Hey guys, what's up? It is week 217. Gotta start this out with a correction. Yesterday I was rambling, uh, last week I was rambling on about Irizumi, and I mentioned it was the director of Blind Woman's Curse. That is inaccurate. It's the director of Blind Beast. So I got thrown off. Um, I did. Co I am covering Blind Woman's Curse this week, and that is an Ishii film, um, who directed Horrors of Malformed Men and the Joys of Torture film. So somehow I thought Irizumi was the same. I, I don't know. Anyways, I was screwing up. I've actually never had a chance to watch Blind Beast. And if you watch Ishii's movies, you can definitely tell that he didn't direct Irizumi. I just was kind of a little surprised, taken back, that I was like, is this the same guy? But my bad, my mistake. Remember, I am not a film historian. I am not a film expert. I am merely a film enthusiast. Um, if I make mistakes or do something wrong, let me know. Just don't be ridiculously insane about it and... I'll obviously take your uh, your your comments and concerns and read them and do corrections and everything like that. There are subjects I know a little bit more about others, so uh, I, I but I'm not afraid to watch and talk about movies that I'm a, I'm novice on. I mean, I'm not afraid of looking stupid, obviously. Um, so don't ever take me as some sort of like um, this is the the word and that's the way it is. These are just opinions, and I'm just a film enthusiast, not an expert or anything like that. But I do love film. So let's start this out with the first film that I'm going to talk about, and this is the new 4K release of um, Gary Sherman's flick, um, Dead and Buried. Um, I think this one made the video nasties list, if I'm not mistaken. It's sure um, <laughs> there's another probably correction, but I, I feel like it did make the list, although probably didn't really deserve it. But this is the second film by Gary Sherman. Gary Sherman directed a movie that was shot in uh, Canada, the UK which I actually covered on here a while back called Raw Meat, a.k.a. Deathline. It was shot in the UK as an American director, though. That starred Donald Pleasance and Christopher Lee, of course. And it was a pretty good flick, made in 74. So it took quite a bit of time for him to get his second feature made. This is 81. And yeah, I, I had seen this one years back. Uh, I had a VHS. I, I watched the DVD that um, it was Blue Underground put out. So And I hadn't watched it in 15 years, 15 to 20 years. So I was, I was looking forward to checking it out. And these 4K... Um, Masters from Blue Underground have been top-notch. Zombie was amazing. All of them have been really excellent. And yeah, I, I was really looking forward to watching this one. I always liked it. Um, this time around, I absolutely fell in love with it. It's it's more of an adult horror film. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't fall around teens. It's not really a, a party kind of movie. It's a really well-made thriller. Um, it does have similarities to me, like with something like Messiah of Evil. And I, it's not like the kind of Lovecraftian aspect, although I don't want to say there really is one. This one it has a huge New England feel, although they left the name of the town kind of vague or the, the name of the state or location kind of vague, just an oceanside town, but it feels cold. It stars James Ferentino, who's in the final countdown, which I covered a few weeks back, a uh, decent sized role in that one. This one, he's the main star. He is kind of a local sheriff, moved back to his hometown to kind of, you know, take a job there. He's happily married, so he thinks. Um, and all of a sudden, uh, a, a strange kind of body shows up. It looks like a car accident, but as they dig deeper, he really has an awful feeling about it. Um, the movie opens up beautifully. It has these like black and white f photos and everything, and it just sets the mood. It sets the kind of great, like rich history of this town. You genuinely feel it. And what helps that rich history as well is, is peppering the movie with a bunch of character actors, a lot of which like you'll be like, hey, that guy looks vaguely familiar. You'll click on his name, and he has been 30, 40, 50 movies 
these big movies too and then you're like oh yeah yeah i remember that guy in that movie um some names that obviously pop out to me are barry corbin was in here and i didn't even know that was barry corbin i was like it looks like barry corbin but it can't be barry corbin it, it fucking barry corbin and also jack albertson he, he's not a supporting he's a star in here robert england of course is in this one and there's a lot of other super familiar faces in the movie anyways what happens um, the opening of the film is is fantastic, um, and the guy in the opening, if I'm not mistaken, I, I believe he is the uh, homosexual character in Savage Weekend, and uh, if I do say so myself, he is the best part of Savage Weekend, and that is a movie that includes uh, William Sanderson and David Gale, so that's quite a feat. Um, all three of them are really good in it, and if I remember correctly, I do remember liking that movie, but it's been years. Um, that's a proto-slasher, I would say. So, anyways, the opening of this movie starts off really great. Um, this is photographers on the the uh, beach, and he's taking these pictures, and, and he's just, uh, the atmosphere is really thick, and Lisa bon Bonet, I think it's Bonet is how you pronounce her name, or Blunt, or however she is, she's in Prince of Darkness is what I know her from. She, she shows up, and she starts to flirt with him, and it's almost like out of a romance novel. It's very surreal and dreamlike and romantic, and of course, it gets really messed up and tragic and it's a brutal scene involving a murder um and of course that is the guy who's found in the car so it, it gets really complicated and you know something fishy's going on and as it goes on and on you start to see that people that were involved with the murder are just everyday citizens in this town and people who are murdered are ending up in the town as well and i don't want to spoil too much here um it's a really um great mystery uh, figuring out what the hell is going on and it's genuinely creepy as hell the music's great and you see that the town is planting these seeds of, of doubt within the, the sheriff and eventually he starts to crack and I love it's a good performance I know that in the commentary Troy Haworth and Nathaniel Thompson who do a great job by the way were mentioning that some people thought it was up at the top and in this situation it's so insane and so nerve-wracking and, and the reveal is so fantastic. I don't think going too big is an option here. I think that the reaction that a lot of people would have would be completely bonkers. Jack Albertson is great in this. Uh, you guys will know him mostly from classic films, but for me, he's Grandpa Joe and Willy Wonka. So him playing a, a mortician, coordinator or whatever is fantastic. He's like lots of good lines and lots of weird dialogue. Uh, yeah. This is a great film. Um, the camera work is fantastic as well. Loved the camera work. Um, all the transitions and opening shots are really well done. It's, it's really surprising. Like, And they're unique, but not so ridiculously over the top. You can tell somebody's like, hey, hey. It's just like really professionally well done. Interesting transitions um you'll see a shot where it's from the point of view of inside a car and, and you're through the windshield and you'll see a car pull up you'll see um basically a, a dolly shot or, or a, a kind of a, a shot coming up from the sky coming down when the sheriff walks out of a building and then you'll follow him go down the road it's just or a few steps here and there just to show him leave his house and i'm like and this is what I'm noticing. Like, I was like, I, you know, when you're young, you don't notice things like that. And although that doesn't necessarily make a good movie, um, you're noticing that it's it's fun to watch. And you're like, why? It's just a guy walking. And you're like, oh, because it's shot well. It's acted well on top of that, too. The music's great. Um, a lot of thick atmosphere and creepy stuff, too. That's why I would compare the creepiness in the same vein of Messiah of Evil, which I truly think is an underrated gem. Um, and this one, uh, it just landed a lot harder for me this time. And the reveal, and the stuff with the cameras, and the the um, uh, the film, and stuff like that. That was all a great reveal. Um, there's a little bit of black humor, not not a laugh out loud comedy, which is my understanding. The original screenplay had it. Um, Gary Sherman, like I said, is a good director. He did Deathline. 
this one, Poltergeist 3, which is my personal favorite of the, the trilogy. I'm not saying it's the best, but it's certainly hell of a lot better than part two. <laughs> no doubt. And then he also did Vice Squad, which is one I have not seen, which is crazy. I know I have it. Wings Hauser. I'm sure I'll enjoy the hell out of it. I've heard lots of good things about it. But yeah, I, I love this movie. It looks fantastic in 4K. The sound is great. There's a Dolby Atmos track on here. Uh, just, just uh, there's, there's grain, of course, but it, it, it's supposed to be there. It just... It looks fantastic to me, and everything about it. No complaints about the film in general. Um, if you look at my letterbox uh, rating, I put Welcome to Potter's Bluff, and I gave it four and a half out of five stars. I'm half tempted to just go through my uh, little movie books on some of these movies. I might just do it for the 70s stuff that I'm covering, just to spice up the 70s segment. Um, anyways, the special features are abundant. I did check out some of them. Um, there's four commentaries, uh, one including Gary Sherman, one including the co-writer, co-producer, Ronald uh, Shuzet, and actress Linda Turley. Um, then the third commentary, DP, uh, Stephen Poster. And then the new audio commentary that's uh, added for this release, uh, Troy Haworth and Nathaniel Thompson. Then we have a new behind the scenes of Dead and Buried, which are really cool because we actually see a tracking shot, which was cut um, from the original version that Gary Sherman had. Actually, they cut a lot of this movie. It's a completely different movie according to Gary Sherman. I love how it turned out, but I would be very interested in seeing the original version. Unfortunately, all that stuff is lost. But this tracking shot was basically seen through like the 8mm camera they had lying around for, for backup and stuff that everybody could pick up and film. And it was, it was a mock shot. And you could see what he was going for. There's only like two seconds of the actual shot in the film. But it's a nice shot. Um, it's, it's a reveal of a body and kind of pulling away and everything like that. So, um, yeah. Uh, really good shot, really interesting um, behind the scenes kind of stuff. There's also dead and buried locations now and then. Uh, this was actually shot in California, which kind of surprised me considering the atmosphere feels very uh, New England. And then we have new interview with Murders, Mystery, and Music interviews with director Gary Sherman and composer Joe Rossetti. And Joe Rossetti had a long uh, career. Him and Gary Sherman sit down and they talk. You can tell they're friends. They uh, kind of and and go into the the composing of the music and everything. And Gary Sherman tells a really fun story about how Rossetti was listening to a big choir or orchestra and everything like that. And then he was like listening and he pointed out one guy he's like you're flat in the third chorus and it was just like that's pretty cool to think um the pages of potter's bluff also new interview with novelization author chelsea quinn yarbrough and she was that author that did i think over close to 100 books and this was her movie adaptation she talks about the difference of writing just a book and then one that's already a movie from a screenplay and everything and how different it is she's like i can't write you know that i can't write just a transition a film transition in a book i have to literally come up with more stuff so that's cool and interesting as well and these kind of people aren't usually interviewed so it's nice to see their take on it i mean how many special effects artists which is always great to see being interviewed or directors or producers but have we really heard that many interviews with the person who wrote the novelization of a movie i don't think so and then also, and those are really big right now, a lot of people are digging these kind of like paperbacks from hell deal, that kind of stuff. Stan Whiston, which is an um, archival feature, Dead and Buried FX, talks about that. And he does talk about, I, I'm not sure if he talks about, but there's really obviously an effect they did for reshoots that he obviously didn't do, and it's, it's a poor effect involving some acid. The idea is cool enough, and if it was in like an Al Adamson or Hershey Gordon Lewis movie, you'd be like, this is the best effect of the movie. But since it's in like this movie that was in the millions and it's Stan Whiston effects, you're like, what? the fuck is this um it's just like a rubber head getting pumped full of acid and then we have robert england an early work of horror 
um, interesting archival stuff. England talking about how basically he never knew what was going to be a big hit. Mentions Big Wednesday. Great movie. Dan O'Bannon, Crafting Fear, R.I.P. Dan O'Bannon. He talks about the screenplay and how Alien and a little bit of all that kind of stuff. Um, Dan O'Bannon's a smart guy, interesting guy, underrated guy. And then the theatrical trailers, poster and still galleries, Stephen Poster's location stills, and a dead and buried original motion picture soundtrack by Bro Joe Renzetti. Very good book. I meant a soundtrack. And then also a collectible book with new essay by Michael Gingold. So it is a packed... Um, release and there's three different covers this is the burn one and then there's also i think the nurse the infamous eye scene and then the classic uh dead and buried cover art that we all remember from back in the vhs days even though i i just said uh geez i, I don't remember if my particular video store that i frequented a lot had that vhs i do i did have the vhs growing up but i don't i think i just probably bought it at some point anyways great release love seeing this stuff gary sherman good director and this is a great film and a great release Okay, the next one here is from MVD Rewind Collection, and this is House on Sorority Row. This is a, a classic slasher film from, what, 83, I think it was released. And if you would have asked me, like, uh, a couple weeks ago, it's like, uh, what would you rate House for Sorority Row? I'd be like, I hadn't seen it in 10, 15 years, but I always remember liking it. Probably a 4 out of 5. Rewatching it this time, and I, I talked to some of my friends about it, I was like, man, it just didn't land like it used to. I, I feel like I used to like this movie a lot more, and I, I'm just not sure what was the disconnect or anything like that. I don't like it. I don't think it's a poorly made movie or anything. It just didn't land like it used to. So, and, and, and uh, I'm going to say this right now. The director's coming at the film as uh, he's a fan of thrillers. He's a fan of Hitchcock, that kind of thing. He's not really a fan of the nasty slashers or, or gratuitous exploitation. He He's a filmmaker that's interested in the thriller. So he focuses more on like Hitchcocky and stuff like that, um, which I typically like if they're really well done, you know, if they're Hitchcock or Dario or Brian De Palma, but Brian De Palma and Hitchcock, I mean, Argento have more exploitative elements in their movies, let's be honest. So this one here, it is a slasher, and we have, I think, seven uh, sorority girls that have a really horrible house mother. Um, in the very beginning, we see that um, there's a pregnancy gone wrong, something weird's going on, and it's in the, what, 50s or 60s. This woman seems to have had some complications in a pregnancy, and the doctor seems really guilty about it. We fast forward to modern day and we're at the sorority and the seven girls are ready to graduate, ready to go and leave, but they want to throw a party there. Their house mother is an old battle axe of a woman with a cane and she's just miserable and uh, she wants them gone. She says, no, you're supposed to be out of here. You're not having a party and uh, things escalate. At one point, she tries to basically kill one of the girls who's having sex on a waterbed and you know what happens when you stick a, a sharp cane into a waterbed. Yeah. So, so the one main girl, the bully kind of girl, is really upset and decides to pull a prank. Sorry about that. The prank is absolutely ridiculous. It, it's such an over-the-top prank, and it's just like, I have no idea who elaborate, who wrote this in the script. Like, it's just like sitting there. It feels like, I don't even know how you'd bring it. Like, what's the prank going to be? Let, let's use a gun. Well, what's going to be the gun? Well, um, maybe they'll scare her with a gun. I, I don't, and it's just so, such an elaborate prank. You're just like... So weird. Anyways, it ends up in a tragic death where the house mother is, is seemingly looks like she has a heart attack, but I guess she's shot, even though there's really no squibs. It, it's just really not that well done, to be honest. And it leaves it kind of vague on purpose, I think, so people don't really know what's going on. Anyways, what happens is um, they decide to cover up the body. I'll, uh, I, know, I, I know what you did last summer, which obviously freely lifted from House on Sorority Row. 
and there's uh, obviously arguments among them. But instead of, you know, just kind of canceling the party, they go on with the party and a lot of them are having a great time. And they start to get picked off. And you realize that something with that pregnancy and the house mother and all that and the doctor and uh, the, the, the murder and covering up the body, it's all entangled and uh, the killer is out there and you really don't know exactly who or what it is. So that that's where I'll leave it. Um, the kills aren't that gratuitous. There's a couple that are here and there. Um, obviously kind of added in later or, or forced on the director. I don't, like I said, I don't think this really was his thing. And it's not a gratuitously full of nudity or anything like that. But I am going to sound like a complete and utter asshole for saying this. If you're not as good as Halloween or Black Christmas or Psycho, slasher movies kind of need that gratuitous element. Uh, I, I know that sounds like a, a dumb thing to say, but I need some sex. I need some nudity. I need some violence. And although it's there, and for 83, I'm sure it was very, well, uh, you know, enough, up to snuff, you know, pretty gratuitous for the time. In uh, 2021, it's just not there for me. And especially when you have movies around the same time, like The Burning and The Prowler, and more particular, The Burning, and the Friday 13th movies. You're just like, well, that's gratuitous, even for today, I would say. Although it's not exactly X-rated or anything. But... It still, uh, for me, has that little bit more of a fun slasher flavor. And, and it's nothing wrong with House and Sorority Row. It's just kind of what I look for in a slasher. I, I feel like slashers are inherently dumb. Not all of them, not all of them. But a lot of them are so dumb that I kind of want them to embrace the dumbness instead of trying to class it up a lot of times. And I have no problem with the classy slasher as long as it is made on the same caliber as something really classy. I know, I sound like an asshole. And people are like, this one does have fun, though. It's not completely 100% serious. A lot of the characters are zany and weird and over the top. And it adds that element because of the characters. Without the characters being a little quirky, the movie, I think, is bad. But it does have an interesting setup, even though it's insane. It does have quirky characters. It has a couple decent kills. But um, I guess I don't love it. I like it. I just don't love it. Like it, like I said, if you would ask me a couple weeks before I watched this, I would have like four out of five. Now I'm more like a three out of five. And I don't want to be super hard on the film. The release has a bunch of features on here. Uh, there's an audio commentary with director Mark Rossman, audio commentary with Rossman and Aline Davidson and uh, McNeil, interviews with the cast and crew, including director Rossman, stars Haley Jane Kozak, Aline Davidson and uh, Catherine McNeil, composer Richard Bann and producer Ego Cantor, original pre-credit sequence, alternate ending storyboards, TV spots, theatrical trailer, reversible artwork, collectible mini poster. Liked hearing the uh, interview with Richard Bann. This is a Montaro uh, release. If you guys know the producer Montaro, um, I can't remember his his company but they released um day of the animals and grizzly and he was a piece of shit um he disappeared mysteriously and i'm not sure anybody gave a shit from my understanding because he ripped a lot of people off um i know that girdler got screwed by him and they talk a lot about that in the uh, severn special feature so richard brand kind of mentions it briefly saying ah he just kind of disappeared don't look at me i didn't do it and um i, I like that richard band also underrated composer and the score is good in this too uh yeah and there's interviews of the cast and some of them talk about this and i actually listened to some uh podcasts with some of the people involved with the movie 
and uh, the girl who's uh, infamously has a death scene involving a bathroom. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but you guys will know what I'm talking about. I've listened to her talk about it, and she ended up becoming like a pianist, I believe. And so a lot of these people uh, then continue on with their film careers. That some did though, and the acting is fun. Um, there is of course one that is completely campy performance. What if she didn't die? That's a very infamous line in the movie, or something along those lines. Um, it reminds me of like Linnea Quigley. Um, <laughs> her kind of performances times a hundred. Oh, let's do that. Speaking of, I'm actually recording this July 3rd, and it is Return of the Living Dead. Uh, uh, geez, uh, Memoriam or whatever. The movie Return of the Dead took place on July 3rd. So, yeah, that's awesome. Anyways, um... I know people love House on Sorority Row, and I believe this is the same print as a Scorpion release. Um, I never did get a chance to watch my Scorpion Blu-ray. I am not, this This is only like mono sound, and I feel like the other one might have had 5.1 sound. I'm not 100% on that, so somebody back me up or check, double check Blu-ray.com before you purchase. But I think those other one's out of print, so uh, check this one out if you, if you love the movie. Um, I do like these retro cover arts. They're pretty cool. And uh, yeah, the movie's worth watching, worth owning if you're a slasher enthusiast for sure okay we have another one from the mvd rewind collection and this is mortuary another one i think that came out in 1983 um yeah so this is one that i never watched and it was always on my list to to watch i just always seen the cover i this is one i probably bought on vhs on dvd and on Blu-ray, so that's three purchases, or own three. This is the fourth version I've owned of Mortuary, and this is the first time that I've watched it. Is that insane? That is insane. That's an, that's an insane person. So everybody knows the trailer of this movie. The original trailer had Michael Berryman and this awesome narration where it's like, before, before you whatever, you know, that typical 80s voice on there and Berryman digging graves and he gets pulled under and his hand sticks off to the tombstone. Ah, really cool stuff here. But uh, very false advertising. Um, so this movie is kind of a tame or a slower slasher film. We have a couple of friends who end up breaking into this, uh, I want to say it's a mortuary, of course, duh, um, ran by Christopher George. I think this is his last film released. Uh, Christopher George, great actor, um, and a bunch of stuff, including other Montaro pictures, and this is a Montaro-produced movie as well. Who uh, He's in the Girdler pictures, Day of the Animals and Grizzly. He's in Graduation Day. He's in Exterminator, uh, City of the Living Dead, um, uh, Whiskey Mountain. Christopher George is in a lot of movies. He's a very popular actor amongst, you know, horror and cult enthusiasts. And I like him. He's got a great kind of voice and a great look and a great demeanor. His wife is also in here. Great look to Linda Day George. And, of course, it also has Bill Paxton, who it's got to be one of his first roles. And Bill Paxton is super zany and super cool. Porky as always. Uh, yeah, he's really bizarre in this. So a couple guys break into a mortuary. I going on my tangent. I'm talking about something that I'm all over here, here, there. That's what I do. Um, so they're, they break into this mortuary and the guy wants to steal something because he got stiffed on his last paycheck. They discover some weird things. It looks like Christopher George is doing some weird cult ceremony. Um, and one of them is murdered, although the other friend doesn't notice it. Uh, anyways, the police don't really believe what's going on. They're curious where his missing friend is. And uh, the guy's girlfriend, I believe, is starting to be stalked by some cloaked figure um, that is really pale. 
Uh, meanwhile, we start to figure out that um, Bill Paxton is madly in love with her and super bizarre, and we get some kind of history in the family and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's not that really uh, gratuitously violent, although I do believe there is a couple scenes in here that are super gory, but maybe I shouldn't say super violent. Maybe I should say there's not many kills, but when they're there, I believe that they're pretty much over the top. Um, the reveal at the end is pretty excellent, to be honest. Uh, the, the ending scene reminded me of something like um, Pieces, somewhat, or uh, Mother's Day, the original, that just is like jaw on the floor for a split second. I laughed out loud. I literally laughed hysterically. I just started laughing, which um, I, I, I can't help it. I, if an ending can make you bust out laughing from its insanity, that's a plus. So, uh, yeah, like I said, there's just some weird moments in it. Um, there is a sex scene that's pretty gratuitous. There's bodies on the slab completely naked, which I was like, that's kind of weird. Uh, Christopher George yelling at his son, who is Bill Paxton, by the way, in the film is pretty funny, or yelling at the other guy. So just Christopher George being mean to people I enjoy seeing. Uh, yeah, it just can't really go too much about it. Like, uh, it, it has some like infamous scenes, I guess, of the peeping kind of window guy, uh, the killer, and like the cloak stuff. Um, but I, I don't absolutely love this one either. It's kind of run in the middle for the time. Um, not amazing, but not poorly done enough to be offensive. So, like, I, I would give it a slight recommend. I would say check it out, watch it. Maybe if I saw it when I was really young, I would like it. Um, I really want to check out Funeral Home by William Fruit. It's one that I have not seen because it never had a good release. So hopefully that gets released at some point. Um, okay, so... The one feature on here is an interview with composer uh, John Kakavas. Uh, I don't know how to say his name. Kakavas. Um, anyways, I bring this up because it's an old interview and he's passed since. And actually, the one moderating is Nathaniel Thompson. And the composer actually did um, one of my favorite scores from one of my favorite horror films from the 70s, Horror Express. Which is an excellent score, an excellent movie, and he talks a little bit about that. But there's this really funny part in there where um, he's like, did you have any parts to kind of, because there's an orchestra scene in the movie, did you have anything? He's like, no, I had nothing to do with that, I just did the score. Like, the the, the composer's just very much about the score, and he's like, he doesn't really have shit else about the movie, or, or it's just very straightforward, and he seems cool, and he seems, you know... Uh, I'm glad that somebody like this got interviewed because a lot of these guys never get a chance to speak and I'm glad it's all captured on there. So that's like a lot of these releases. Like this might be the last time you see some of these people speak and it, for this guy, I'm sure it was. Uh, fortunately, for like a releases and everything. But Mortuary, uh, yeah, it did have a release as well. I'm sure it's the same print and everything like that. But that from 1983, so yeah. Okay, we have an absolutely ridiculous movie coming up. Strike Commando, starring Reb Brown from the lovely Howling 2, and of course Robo War by Bruno Mattei, who also directed Strike Commando. This also has, uh, who is it? Who's the guy in here? Christopher Conley from Raiders of Atlantis. I believe he's in that one. And, uh, geez, Jim Gaines has a small role. And, um, this crazy Russian character who calls him Americanoski or some Americanoski. I don't know what the hell's going on. So, okay. Red Brown is a Rambo-type character. He's from the Strike Commando unit. And at the very beginning, him and some of his, his Strike Commando unit team are uh, basically going to set bombs and blow up this big Viet Cong base. They're kind of double-crossed by Christopher Conley, and everybody thinks that they're all dead. But of course, Red Brown... Nobody can kill Red Brown. Have you ever seen any movie? Although I believe he does die in Uncommon Valor. Spoiler, sorry. Um, you can't kill Red Brown, all right? You can't kill the man. So he's behind enemy lines, and he has to survive. 
Of course, he runs into all these kind of crazy villains, including this Russian character who keeps calling him a Marinowski, and they have these fights, and it's just absolute nonsense. Uh, so basically, his uh, commanding officer, who's like a Richard Crenna type, is trying to save him and disobey Christopher Conley. And um, anyways, that's pretty much the plot, but he's he's having all these giant battles. He ends up trying to save this entire village. He has a, a super memorable, hilarious scene where him and this young boy bond and it is the most unintentional hilarious thing of all time and to no fault of red brown or the child actor it's just such a weirdly bizarre written and play scene and the music kicks in and it's an earnest performance by red brown which is what makes it comedic because it's just such an insane like lines of dialogue and you can tell it's just like it's just suchly it's not translated well on the script but he tells this kid about disneyland he's like i come with you to america yada 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 and he's like telling him he's like, again yeah, disneyland they have ice cream cones from trees and there's something that horribly tragic happens and if it wasn't so funny, it would be sad. But seeing Rap Brown be upset talking about ice cream cones in trees, where ice cream cones grow on trees, is so funny. It's so hilarious. Um, Bruno Mattei, I think if if you watch the Robo War that Severn put out, Red Brown mentions that like he had like I think he was always telling him to scream, or maybe that was in the Severn podcast. So Red Brown is always screaming. He's like ah, ah shooting and screaming. It's it's fucking hilarious. Um, I love watching Red Brown. He's a cool dude, especially you see him interviews with him in like the Howling Two. I just he's a cool guy. He was actually at a Cinema Wasteland one year. I, I wish I'd have got his autograph. He's a big dude. Seemed very friendly, very approachable guy. Uh, kind of like like a dad figure, of course, you know, or coach or somebody like that. But uh, yeah. Anyways, the movie's enjoyable as hell. It never slows down. There's always action. There's lots of stunts. It's in the Philippines, so you're just watching these stunts. Like, man, people are going home sore that day. They probably got a dollar ninety nine to blow off three of their fingers. Uh, just that kind of shit. Um, just like you know, it's unsafe as hell in the Philippines. Of course. Bruno Mattei, he's the, the ripoff uh, artist. Uh, Claudio Fagazzo was a screenwriter on this, and I believe his uh, his partner as well. Uh, who is it? Uh, Rose, Rosetta Drudy. They're both interviewed on this disc. Anyways, this is an enjoyable movie, and the end's insane too. There's a big like siege in here. Um, I like the film. It's very enjoyable. Uh, good baddies, even though they're over the top as hell. Red Brown fun. Uh, I like this one. I would watch it again. I would think it'd be a great uh, just kind of B-movie. Put it on with your friends and enjoy yourself. Any, uh, yeah. Um, and it's funny. Uh, Robo War, if you guys have not seen that by Severin, check that one out. They, all, they also put out Shocking Dark. Bruno Mattei. Uh, he's an infamous ripoff artist. Uh, of course, he did Cruel Jaws that they put out. But um, my absolute favorite Bruno Mattei movie will always be Hell of the Living Dead. I love Rats, Nights of Terror, but Hell of the Living Dead is a personal favorite. I love that movie so much. It's so much fun. But yeah, anyways, uh, Strike Commando. Okay, the next one here, of course, is Strike Commando 2. How could it not be, right? Also from Severn Films, also directed by Bruno Mattei, written by Claudio Fregazzo. But it doesn't star Red Brown. What's what's the deal, no Red Brown? It actually stars uh, what is his name, Brent Duff, I think. He's the uh, actor who's in The Perils of Gwendolyn, um, which is a fun adventure film. If you have not seen, put up by Severin. Really fun, exploitative, nudity-filled Indiana Jones-inspired adventure film. A lot of fun. Um, so, Strike Commando Part Two. Uh, yeah, it's more ridiculousness. We have, like, Richard Harris is in this movie. Yeah, Richard fucking Harris is in this movie. What? 
what? Um, so anyways, um, so we, we open up with, uh, Michael Ranson and he has this, um, this nightmare, like this, this Vietnam flashback where Richard Harris saves him and he, he kind of wakes up and he's just, he's not doing too well. And then he, he gets information that Richard Harris has been kidnapped and he's like, I'm not going to stand for that. So he immediately tries to rescue Richard Harris at, at all cost. He ends up beating some guys up and Richard Harris is kidnapped again by a different group. He realized the group he was actually attacking was protecting him, but then they, they actually, uh, somebody else kidnaps him. So he is, uh, hired to actually go through the jungle with diamonds for the ransom and give it to these guys to get Richard Harris back. What he does is he runs into this kind of bar area that's ran by this badass lady and the whole bar is trashed. The lady says, you owe me, I'm going to go with you and collect on some of them diamonds. Uh, uh, yada, yada, yada. So there's a weird team up, which reminds me of the perils of Gwendolyn. They have that back and forth where they kind of like i don't know whether to kick you or kiss you that kind of deal um uh she's she's pretty tough almost as tough as him so there's lots of crazy stunts again there's one stunt where a truck crashes into like a scaffolding thing and all these people jump off heard somebody broke their leg uh, so lots of crazy philippine stunts going on uh richard harris is good in the film he's always good um so yeah there's, of course, some double-crossing, some, some stuff going on. Also, ridiculous bad guys. The bad guy in this one feels like he's like an Indiana Jones villain through and through. Or maybe he's like that guy in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, the, the guy with the glasses, the weird... Go What the hell is it? Him? Gobstop? I can't think of his fucking name. But he's not good. You don't like him. He reminds me of some weird Nazi spy or something like that. So, yeah. It, it's a ridiculous movie, of course. Um... And the performances are over the the character of Michael Ranson is just always has to be over the top and ridiculous and, and it pretty much he pretty much is, uh yeah it, it's an enjoyable goofy movie um yeah uh, it's super silly and a little bit more lighthearted than the first one I would say, but I did enjoy my time with it uh, on the disc uh Brett Duff. Uh, let me double check if that's his name. I don't want to keep screwing up this poor guy's name. It is Brent Huff. Hey, he's interviewed on here. He seems like a very cool guy. He makes a lot of good jokes. He's like uh, about the, the shooting and everything like that. Talks about that he's still friends with the lead woman and her and her husband and they own a boat. And all that kind of stuff. Just very casual, very down-to-earth guy. Very nice. And then we also have Claudio Fragazzo talk. And he talks a little bit about his, some encounters with Richard Harris, which are pretty funny, pretty entertaining. And uh, Fragazzo is a... I, you know, I enjoy his interviews. I enjoy quite a bit of his movies. I know a lot of people... They kind of like stick their nose up to a lot of the Bruno Mattei or Fagazzo movies. They're like, these suck. I'm like, you direct after death then. You direct Zombie 4 and see with the money and the everything that they have and see how it turns out. I bet it's ten times worse. Okay. So I, I, I'm a big fan of Zombie 4. Uh, always enjoyed that one. Uh, completely ridiculous, over-the-top movie. Gore, shooting, and everything like that. Also put out by Severn Films, along with Zombie 3. Um, yeah, so I do enjoy a lot of these kind of uh, insane movies. And they're, they, they, they're always entertaining. And a lot of films, although some movies obviously have messages, and, and a lot of movies will do several things, the main concern for most movies is to entertain you, and they and Bruno Mattei always entertains you. Fagazzo always entertains you, so don't forget that. Just have a good time with these movies, and I don't think that you'll be upset. So that is Strike Commando 1 and 2. Good stuff. Okay, this next one here is Invaders of the Lost Gold. And again, I believe this is another one shot in the Philippines. So let me name the cast here really quick. Okay, so we have um, 
Stuart Whitman, classic actor. He was just in Sands of the Kalahari, which I covered a while ago. He's in a bunch of movies. Um, then we have Edwin Perdum, who's in Perdum, who's in Pieces and Don't Open Till Christmas, which I think he partially directed that. Uh, a slew of other movies. And then we have Woody Strode, who I love. Love Woody Strode. Laura Gemser, that's Black Emmanuel herself. And Harold fucking Sakata, that's Zobjob. So I was like, this is a really fun put-together cast. Good stuff, good stuff. I was excited to watch it. In the very beginning, we have this scene where all these natives are attacking these Japanese uh, soldiers. It's 1945. And they're trying to take this gold through the, the this jungle. And they're kind of like cut off. They have to hide the gold. Everyone else dies but these three commanding officers. They decide to make a pact that no one comes back for the gold unless they're all together so uh basically Edmund Perdum is an evil Perdum is an evil asshole he ends up trying to putting together this team to find the gold for this rich investor um he ends up getting Harold Sakata after the other two are gone Harold Sakata to is one of the obviously commanding soldiers to kind of join on their their team to go into the jungle they need Stuart Whitman but Stuart Whitman is like this washed up alcoholic who served time and he's just not acting at this point, I don't think. Um, he's still good in the film, still solid, but he seems very, very drunk at this point. Seems very hangoverish. Anyways, uh, Woody Stroh goes along because he's the personal bodyguard of the rich investor. The rich investor goes along. The daughter, Laura Gemser's there. So we have a, a some assembled crew to go look for this gold. This is like. 40 minutes into the movie at this point we have all the characters introduced and then they're on their way to the gold of course people are picked off here and there in the most ridiculous ways and you know what Edmund and Stuart they do not like each other they have a history alright um this is a really poorly done film to be honest I, I don't want to be too negative like the, I, the cast is fun I like the cast but of course they're picked off people like there's one point where Laura Gemser strips down she starts swimming and you're like okay this is pretty much run of the court you know this is what you expect and then like there's a, something uh, crazy that happens and i was just like what the what happened there what happened there the kills are so bad so bad so predictable so ridiculous um there's a fight scene with woody strode and harold sakata and i was like yes i want to see this i've been waiting for this so like they grab each other and Harold Sakata and Woody Strode, I've seen him in other movies. I've seen him fight. I've seen Harold Sakata's been in cheap movies, the William Griffin movies, and you watch those and he'll be like, you know what? He's good in it. He's fine in it. And I don't think he's bad in this. And you'll see like choreographed stuff and it turns out fine. Woody Strode has been in fucking huge movies and tons of films Kingdom of the Spiders, The John Ford, uh, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, um, freaking, geez, Once Upon a Time in the West. And he fights. He gets, you know, the Unholy Four. He fights. He gets, you know, into the stuff. And, and Sakata's obviously a very, uh, you know, in shape guy for his age. So there's like two older guys and you know they could fight. You know, they've been through tons and tons of like choreographed fights and everything. They're actors. They know what the fuck they're doing. I'm sure of it. This is edited so poorly and it's done so poorly. And it's just the worst fight choreographing I've ever seen from two people that are, are actors. And I know that they could do a way better job. So I'm going to have to blame the editor and the director and just the filmmaking process in general. Worst fight scene of all time for the, the caliber of actors. Just terrible. Like, there's one point where, I don't want to spoil who it is, but they're walking across this bridge, and you know what's going to happen. It's shaking, of course. And a character casually tosses his bag over the side, like, to not hurt it, and then falls over. Like, ah! And you're just like, what the fuck? Um, it might be funny to certain people. People might get a kick out of this. And I, I, and I just, like, I just pray Strike Commando 1 and 2, and I'm not laughing at any of the stunts that looked, you know, I, I like, those are completely passable, completely great stunts, and, and expensive, and scary, and cool stuff. Okay? So I'm not, like, 
like some snob, but this stuff is just like, I know that they're shooting on location. You got to give them props for that, but it's just done very poorly. And I imagine the budget's not very much and it's just, it's just not very good to be honest. And is has this weird element of course of, you know, Stuart Whitman's like 45, 50 year old guy. And there's like two 20 year old beauties fighting over him. Like, I love him. I love him more. And Stuart Whitman's like, give me another drink darling and it's just uh that was the worst Stuart Whitman of all time but it's just that weird kind of thing there where we have like like almost grandpa level guys like picking up 20 year olds it's just a product of its time but like I mentioned I was like even when you watch stuff like later in the 70s like you see Brannigan like John Wayne like has the the young uh is it Judy Geeson is it is she is it's a female in that I can't remember it's been a while and instead of being like let's make this a love interest they're like smart enough to be like well we're gonna make this a, fa a father-daughter relationship instead and you're like very smart very cool works very well and this it's just like this does not work it just feels really stupid um anyways you can't really give this a recommend i know some people really like this kind of stuff but it's just not a very good film i'm sorry um as, and, and and like the quality changes and stuff because obviously like when like a weird effect or transition is going to happen it dips in quality that's just how the elements and, and how edited and stuff all is preserved and everything so we have rumble in the jungle interview with director alan birkinshaw and he seems fine with the movie i imagine that he was working under very tight uh you know budgetary constraints and all that kind of stuff and i couldn't do better in the jungle but i'm being honest uh, outtakes from machete maidens unleashed with director alan birkinshaw and wife of producer dick randall and Clarice randall She's pretty open and honest about the situation. He has, tells a good story about Stuart Whitman being drinking in the bar and, and just patting her on the shoulder and being so goddamn strong. He shoves her halfway across the bar. So that's kind of interesting. And I, I like Stuart Whitman, man. He's great in that Sands of the Kalahari movie and other things. I know he has a small appearance in White Buffalo, if I'm not mistaken, and the Giallo or the crime film. He's just a solid actor that's in a bunch of stuff. Anyways, this one, Vader's the Lost Gold. I'm going to give this a pass on me, but just watch the trailer. You might dig it. Hit it. That's pretty frightening. quite cancelled the war out of here yet. E Bruno diceva, eh, metti la cassetta, io faccio così, copia la scena, copia pure il dialogo e io... I could mess up a line, he's like, print, fantastic, we move on. <laughs> well, we might want to do it one more time. Brilliant! Most of the actors and 
most of the technical crew had all worked on Apocalypse Now, so they all knew all about movie making. And I suppose we were probably the next film to be shot in that area. Most of the river scenes in Apocalypse Now were shot in the same river that we were using. Okay, this one here is from uh, Wellgo USA, and it here comes the young men, uh, or here are the young men. I'm sorry about that. Uh, so yeah, um, I not really heard much about this one. It's definitely like a coming of age story to a certain extent, uh, kind of teens on delinquent teens on a run kind of film. Um, not I, I, I don't want to say in the vein of like Larry Clark or something like that. Um, cause I don't, I, I mean, Larry Clark is kind of unmatched in those films and, and I don't even want to compare it to something like Spring Breakers. I would say Spring Breakers is a little bit better done. Um, a lot better done for me. I, I, I know I'm coming at this negative. So this one I believe takes place in Ireland. We have three teens <laughs> and, um, the one thing in this, it's kind of a slight spoiler. I just want to get it right off in the beginning. It's right in the first 10 minutes of the film and it's kind of the setup. We have the kids kind of like, um, one of the kids is kind of in uh, being talked to by a teacher, played by the father from The Witch, which is really great to see. And Anna Taylor-Joy is also in here from The Witch. So we have a couple uh, The Witch alumni, which is cool. And they're probably the best parts of the film, to be honest. Um, and the lead, the main lead guy, I think, does a... It, it's kind of These are kind of hard performances to do, okay? So he's being interviewed with his teacher, and he gives him the whole, you are your actions kind of speech and everything like that. You're better than what you've been doing, and I know you'll do better, yada, yada, yada. So... What happens here is right after that, he's inter he meets up with his friends and his friends kind of break into the school and they start trashing everything. Um, and uh, they go down and they start destroying the teacher's car. The teacher catches him. He looks right at him and defies him and destroys the car. Then they kind of run away. We see them running among the streets and they witness a horrible accident of some poor little girl dying. And this kind of is the catalyst to them completely changing everything. But we cut to a scene of them going to the police station. They go to the fucking police station and leave a statement about the little girl's death. It's like, you think there were security guards chasing them out of the school. The teacher looked directly at them and talked to them. And then they just go right to the police station. We need some idea that the teacher didn't report it. The security guards told them not. Oh, the teacher told the security guards not to report it. But literally, they threw a, a fucking desk out a window. They're going to jail. The cops are looking for them. There is a report. They're not going to throw it out the window because they witnessed something awful. That is just like poorly done one-on-one screenwriting. Is there a scene cut? It makes no sense. But later on in the film, they start to blur reality with, you know, what he's seeing on the television. But this is not part of that. No? I, I don't understand. Was there a time lapse? I don't know, but it doesn't sure seem like it. doesn't make any sense. It just really bothered me right off the bat where these two just, these three just committed a crime. Then they witness another kind of horrible act, but they go to the police station and leave a statement and nobody says a goddamn thing. They go to the police station without worrying about it. That is such dumb writing. That is the dumbest thing I've seen in a long time. And maybe I'm missing something. If I am, please let me know. Just bothered me to no end. Um, sorry about that. Maybe there's something missing. It did bother me. Maybe I'm just not paying close enough attention. I don't think so. Anyways, uh, the catalyst, what happens is like they're young kids. They want to party. They want to do their thing. And each one of them reacts differently to what they witnessed. Um, one starts to kind of get very depressed about it. One seems infatuated with it. And the main character is, is obviously uh, troubled with it as well. He starts a relationship with Anna Taylor-Joy. And the one thing about the film that they're obviously trying to make a message on is toxic masculinity and how possibly the media or whatever is put out into the world is kind of corrupting the youth, kind of teaching people that uh, certain actions that they make are 
acceptable. And he sees this through this television program and he went he kind of visualizes and sees his friend within that. And he's almost like torn between these two of being good and kind of following into his friend's footsteps and doing these awful things and treating women poorly and doing these crimes and delinquents and degenerate activity and stuff like that. So he, he's definitely a torn character. Um, the other character who seems to kind of get very depressed, I, I feel like this character is underutilized and almost completely only there for other characters to bounce off of. So it's just not the main too i just not sure what his point is and he's just, he's not really much of a character to me the the main focus is on uh, kearney and the lead here and i do think that their performances are complicated performances not exactly easy to do and they probably anna taylor joy is solid in it but their their performances i, I don't want to say poor it's just a strange film to tackle and um i'm always one to say i don't need to like characters i do not need to like anybody in this movie i just want to have to watch them i just want to be interested in what's going on and maybe I'm so far removed from that kind of mindset that watching this, I'm just like, I don't care that much. And when we're comparing to like other high school delinquency movies, um, like um, Larry Clark's films, I feel like there's a, a darker message that crosses over into adulthood and just feels more real life. Or something like Spring Breakers, which is, I, I feel like, it's a different message, of course, of the youth being taken into the crime and, and, and stuff like that. And, uh, and it's just more stylized in, in a way. I like those a little bit better. Although the lighting here is good, there's lots of good scenes in the club that uh, surround sound works really well. The music comes through, lots of nice blues and reds and stuff like that. It's not a poorly made film at all. And I don't disagree exactly with the message that, you know, the youth can be corrupted by a weird message that they see. And, and they're Irish, so they're infatuated. The one character is with going to the United States and watching this United States program where this, this main kind of character is kind of insulting the audience and being rude to the audience and, and putting on this, this front of, you know, treat women like shit and whatever and all that kind of thing like that um and the lead character sees his friend within that being corrupted by it possibly kind of corrupt him this kind of weird element like that um the character who plays like the game show host or whatever i'm not sure if he was an american um character because his irish accent or there was an accent breaking through i'm not sure what's going on if it's kind of blurring reality or whatever but i didn't know where his accent lied or where his character is supposed to be from but i understanding was it was an american kind of thing here anyways uh, uh, there is a really kind of strange how it starts mixing reality towards the end and the confrontation between Kearney and the lead character here, which I kind of liked. Um, like I said, um, the problem doesn't lie within the characters being exactly unlikable. It lies within, for me, not really giving that much of a care about it. Um, but I don't think it's a horrible film. It's just really not something that's for me. And I think if I was younger, maybe I could uh, appreciate it a little bit more. Anyways, uh, here are, I, I always want to say, here comes the young man. It's here are the young men. So if it sounds like it's uh, up your alley, check it out. Um, yeah, so uh, no features, which I really would have kind of liked to see the director's take on it. Maybe like him talking a little bit more about corrupted youth and things like that. Or I could have gathered some more, some, some, some stuff that would have helped me appreciate the film a little bit more than I did. Okay, let's do the Patreon pick. And this was, um, was it Tom Brooker who did this one? I, oh, I'm maybe I'm mistaken, but it is. I survived a zombie Holocaust. Yeah, I survived a zombie Holocaust. Um, with a title like that, I was uncertain. I was like, I don't really know what to expect. I believe this one is from New Zealand. Maybe it's Australia. It's definitely uh, one of those countries. And I want to say New Zealand because it stars the uh, one of the guys from Deathgasm is in here. And I believe that's a New Zealand flick. But it, I'm not 100% sure. Anyways, what we have here is a movie about making movies, uh, and it's a zombie film. They're making a zombie film, and zombies attack. We've seen it before, um, but it doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. It's, it's not the 
you know, sometimes movies that are, they're making a movie within the movie, sometimes they're great, sometimes they're awful. I Survived the Zombie Apocalypse follows a guy who is a PA. Um, he's obviously from film school. He's got a script. He loves film. He's all bright-eyed and ready to go. Right when he gets to set, he realizes everybody's an asshole. The director is insane. He's actually the main baddie in Deathgasm. Um, the assistant director is just miserable. Um, the props guy, I think that uh, it's the props guy. He's just delusional, the delusions of grandeur from when he was a, a, a rugby player. And then the, he has a thing for the uh, the um, catering woman. And then uh, it's just a miserable experience. Head to down. The lead actor is a complete douchebag. The, lead, uh, the other lead actor is a diva. So he's just treated like shit, of course. Um, there's a method actor on set, so it's everything, every kind of stereotype you could imagine in these movies. And of course, the real zombie apocalypse attacks, and it's for a bunch of people to survive. There is a, a character who's an American who's obsessed with guns, and um, what happens to him is pretty funny. Uh, I was like, are you going to do that? They do it at the right moment to where it's not too, uh, like, it's not annoying. It's just like, oh, I was like, all right, they're not doing that. Then they're like, maybe they are doing that. And then they did do it, and I thought it was funny. So it worked on me. I laughed out loud quite a bit. There's some good moments in here. Um, there's some obvious lowbrow humor. Um, there's some good gore effects, some nasty stuff, people getting eaten. Uh, yeah. And the ending, it's all set up with the uh, rugby stuff. It's fun. It's, it's kind of endearing, to be honest. I enjoyed myself. I was rooting for the characters. I liked all the characters. Um, no real complaints. It's just an enjoyable, low-budget zombie film with uh, decent acting and uh, nothing no, nothing to complain about. Uh, the, there's a lot of good jokes here. Um, a really uh, diseased wiener, of course. Uh, the grossest diseased wiener I've seen since, let's go, Cabin Fever 2. I mean, I have a huge plethora to pick from disease wieners um maybe i'll do diseased wieners week um we can do that but cabin fever too that's a pretty nasty one so anyways uh yeah enjoyable i don't really have too many complaints about it. i don't have anything super negative i mean it, it it's it's a low budget film you can kind of tell by the look of it but it's not like super poorly made or anything like that it's very competent uh the lead character i enjoyed uh and he's just, everybody's kind of like that stereotypical character but it works well and i have no complaints about the film um funny very funny uh, good stuff. Uh, endearing, too. So I survived the zombie apocalypse. Enjoy it. I think a lot of people will. Just give it a chance. And there's so many low-budget films that I don't typically give a chance anymore because life is very short and a lot of time. I've seen so many independent films in the last 10 years, and I like a handful of them a lot. But uh, so much now more than ever, it's just there's not that many that I really wish I wasted the time on. I don't want to say waste, but uh, there's so many good movies out there that I haven't seen that sometimes it's like when you haven't watched, you know, something like um, just for example, um, Treasures of the Sierra Madre. Do I want to watch low budget movie number 782 where it's a ripoff of Night of the Living Dead, except this time um it's it's you know i don't know it's just it costs two dollars i i'm sorry life is short um and i ever since i've heard that joe dante said told that story with him and uh, john landis at the theater and they were watching a movie they used to see everything and one of them they looked at her and said life's short man let's get out of here um and i waste a lot of time i don't want to say waste i spend a lot of time watching movies and i know a lot of people don't want to hear me kind of not want to watch independent movies all right because I pretty much watched so many independent movies and covered them. But I do feel less likely to watch them. And I know it sounds shitty, but a lot of times when they're foreign, they're a little bit different. A little bit, you know, they get funding from the governments and everything like that. Well, America, like, they got a like, claw. And a lot of guys and a lot of people in general just don't have the means or the money to make them. And 
it shows and it's not even just that it's not even that you know so it mostly comes down a good script can make a good movie all right a good script you can make a good movie and i'm probably guilty of making movies that people don't want to watch either so hey it is what it is anyways i survived the zombie apocalypse it's not one i mean holocaust is not one of them it's enjoyable it's fun it's got good comedy it's got some decent effects no complaints here Alright guys, so I hope you enjoyed this intro I made for a 1970 uh, segment. It's about a minute and 35. I kept tweaking it and changing things. There is uh, the song obviously I used is a very famous song by a very famous band. And it was from 1970, their debut album. Thought it worked perfectly. Um, and also I used 15 movies, 15 different movies. And I added some news footage kind of in the background. Um, anyways, some of the movies I really like. Some I just think have amazing scenes. So hopefully you like it. Let me know what you think. I'm going to play it. It's been on my channel for a little bit. Kind of now I made it live uh, the t Saturday, July 3rd. So just, just posted a little bit around. But I'm going to include it in uh, the intro between before all this 1970 reviews. So. Though sometimes beaten back, he came again and again against the enemy. Till at the end he came alone from the bloody field, for he alone could triumph. This was a Dracula deed. In President Nixon ordered American troops into Cambodia. He called it an incursion, not an invasion. It lasted for two months. The purpose was to destroy enemy bases and supply lines. At times, that mission was extremely dangerous. Marcus Welby, MD, and the Dick Cavett Show will not be seen tonight, so that we may bring you live cover coverage of the 42nd Annual Awards of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The Jimi Hendrix experience is over. The acid rock musician died today in a London hospital, apparently from an overdose of drugs. Headquarters in Washington, I'm Howard K. Smith. I'm Harry Reasoner in New York. These are tonight's headlines. Rail service across the nation is crippled by the continuing strike of the Railway Clerk Union. President Nixon meets with newsmen in his first nationally televised news conference since late July. Defense Council says that Lieutenant Kelly had orders from higher up to kill every living thing in July. And Secretary of State Rogers pledges that American troops will not be sent back into Cambodia. Howard? Reports tonight on the rail strike from Gregory's... And after she let the devil fornicate with her, making the men impotent. Okay, we're going to start the 1970 movies here with the last two Andy Milligan horror films from this box set. And the first bad boy of this set is, of course... Um, it's got to be The Body Beneath, right? Yeah, The Body Beneath. This is a vampire flick. That's right. And uh, was this one shot in Britain? I know he did two in Britain from uh, this set from 1970 and two in America. I think this one is the British film. So anyways, what we have here is maybe I say this first. There's four Andy Milligan horror films from 1970. Four, five in this set. One's not a horror film, Nightbirds. But there's four, okay? And I covered four. And three of them have a fucking hunchback. Three of the four movies have a hunchback. Isn't that absolutely ridiculous? And I think three of the four are period pieces. That's insane. Three of the four have period pieces. Three of the four have a hunchback. And I just think it's like, you gotta have a hunchback in a horror movie, right? So obviously it's a it's a throwback. He obviously is taking his inspiration or knows about horror from the classic films. Um, which makes sense because it's 1970. And not much to throw back to except, you know, the classic horror films. Anyways, uh, The Body Beneath um, follows a story of this 
maybe a reverend. He's clearly a fucking vampire. And uh, what he has, he's going around and his family lineage is what, what are their last names? I can't remember. But um, he goes around, he's trying to find uh, kind of shirt tail relatives in England. And he needs them, needs their blood, needs them to kind of uh, breed and make a new line of vampires so their, their line doesn't kind of die out from awful inbreeding and all that kind of thing. So he's kind of focused on a few characters here and there. He ends up focusing on this young girl who is uh, newly engaged. We, of course, see a long sex scene with them. Uh, how can you not, right? And uh, basically... They're kidnapped at points. The hunchback in this movie is absolutely... Is he the hunchback? See, I'm mixing both these movies together if there's a hunchback in this one or not. See, that's that's where it starts to get confusing. I think there is a hunchback in this movie. So, yeah. Anyways, the hunchback, I think, shows some sympathy. I don't have that much to say about the movies. What I do think I liked about this one most, because everybody's very short, is the vampires here, a lot of them are like bright blue and bright green in their paint, and I just like how they look, especially when they're walking around and they're like kind of like I guess somewhat gothic outfits and they're just kind of walking around rainy England and you're seeing a little bit of like cemeteries in the background and, and just like dreary kind of you know uh, atmosphere and I'm gonna be honest I enjoyed seeing that I didn't I didn't hate it there was also a long scene where they kind of address the vampire council where he's sitting and it shot like a fish lens I guess you'd call it and he's saying that they need to move and change their ways and, and leave their town because the police are catching all that kind of stuff um it's not a absolutely horrible at all. I didn't hate it. I don't love it. Um, I don't have that much to say about the film. Um, and this one, I think there is a, a commentary on here, which I enjoyed. It, I, I listened to a lot of that. And it's a couple British gentlemen talking about Andy Milligan's movies and everything like that. Um, yeah. So anyways, that's The Body Beneath. Sorry for the short review. It's just that the movies are very short and I don't have that much to say about a lot of the short kind of cheapy horror films that, uh, you know, Body Beneath. Okay, the next Andy Milligan movie is Guru, the Mad Monk. And uh, this is from 1970. This stars a guy named Neil Flanagan. And I'm going to be honest, you know, Andy Milligan's actors, they range in quality. Neil Flanagan was pretty damn good. And he reminded me of kind of a Claude Frollo type from The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He even had a hunchback character. Of course, I said three of the four movies that Andy Milligan directed in 1970 have a fucking hunchback. So, uh, yeah, I meant three of the four horror films. So, anyways, what we have here is uh, a period piece, uh, of course. And we have this character, uh, Guru. He's this crazy monk. And there's a young girl who's sentenced to death. Um, for something that she didn't really do, um, involves a, a baby, obviously, a miscarriage, kind of murder, baby, got a dark, disturbing subject matter, of course, that he kind of focuses on. I feel like two or three of these movies had something to do with a dead baby. And anyways, what happens is this, this guy who works at the prisons in love with this woman and wants to save her life. He looks to Guru, the mad monk to help him out. Guru says, I will help you out, but you start, you have to do something for me. You kind of have to write off some of the bodies that, um, after they're killed and say, you know, do me a favor and I will save your girlfriend. And he basically gives her some, uh, William Shakespeare style drugs. Think Romeo and Juliet to save her where they think she's dead and they're going to hide her in the church. Meanwhile, Guru seems to be taking care of what appears to be a fucking vampire, which is also bonkers. So he has a hunchback and a vampire and he's a crazy mad Cro uh, Claude Frollo type character. Um, it reminds me of something, maybe even uh, I know the director compares it, uh, I mean the commentator compares it, uh, Keith um, is it Keith something, he used to run Wild Eye director of the Bloody Ape big expert Andy Milligan he compares it to like the period pieces from the time of course like you know Witchfinder General and I would even say the Rasputin movie with um, Christopher Lee from Hammer as well so uh, he's definitely that kind of character 
And his performance is solid. It's a really good performance for this. So he ends up, you know, uh, keeping this girl hostage and more and more people show up to confess the sins and Guru starts to kill them. Um, and feed the blood of the vampire, I assume. Um, so, so it has all this kind of crazy stuff going on, and all things come to a head when a couple uh, more uh, uh, monks or priests or whatever show up to take over his spot. And one is played by actually the guy from uh, Gerald's out there. He's in uh, he's in that frickin' torture dungeon where he's completely over the top with the fake mustache. He's in this one as well. So uh, the hunchback shows sympathy. I, I think it's this one where the hunchback... I think the hunchback shows sympathy in both movies. He's kind of sympathetic. So, yeah. And, of course, all things come to a head and get absolutely insane and people are murdered. Um, this one I felt was more enjoyable, actually. I thought this one was cool. And it's like 56 minutes. It was a lost movie forever. It was very hard for people to see until, I think, the last 10 years or so. Um, the commentary I enjoyed quite a bit. Because this guy is an Andy Milligan expert and he's a huge fan. And he's the type of expert that used to go around and talk to the actors that were in the film and get as much information as they possibly could from a lot of the people who are still alive. That is very valuable for me to hear. He talks about the actors in the film, what happened to them, who they were, how they interacted with him, and all that kind of stuff. Um, he is a... Um, Tons of knowledge about the film. And if you guys haven't seen the movie this guy directed, he directed a couple, but he directed one called Bloody Ape, which is actually really funny. It's been years since I've watched it, but I remember getting quite a kick out of Bloody Ape. Um, so check that one out. But anyways, yeah, it's, it's a very good commentary. Um, very knowledgeable. And uh, you can hear the love and uh, and everything in that. Um, definitely a historian when it comes to Andy Milligan, which I liked hearing. Um, there's also an uh, interview with uh, somebody who uh, was on set sometimes, and I believe he was a big fan of Andy Milligan. And he talks about how Andy Milligan used to scream and yell at people until they burst into tears. Uh, again, doesn't sound like the, the nicest guy in the world. Anyways, Guru the Mad Monk, enjoyable for what it is. You know, these are no-budget uh, horror films. But anyways, I thought this one was just uh, a little bit better. And it's probably because the lead performance here was was a lot better than a lot of the uh, other performances in some of the movies. Also, that Jerry guy who's from Torture Dungeon in this one, he's also really fun. Uh, anyways, Guru, the Mad Monk, check it out. Okay, this next one from 1970 is Blind Woman's Curse. Yeah, and this is by Ishii, directors of Horrors of Malformed Men and uh, The Joys of Torture, Shogun Sadism, all those kind of movies. Uh, lots of crazy films. And this one is nuts. Uh, Blind Woman's Curse opens up with a slow motion, like uh, samurai fight. Not samurai, but sword fight. Um, it's really awesome. The lead character in here, she's fighting this rival gang. And um, the, the rival gang leader's sister jumps in the way of the sword. And she takes it to the eyes. And she goes down. And a cat licks her wounds. And uh, after this, our lead character is in prison for several years. And all the people within the prison kind of like uh, bow down to her. And she gets out and they come to her and they want to join her gang and all that stuff. Which which kind of reminded me a little bit of Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. how Or uh, Lady Vengeance, how like the gang, the people from prison are all interacting with her and everything later on after she's released. Um, may, obviously probably maybe inspired by stuff like this. Anyways, um, the gang, the, the, the female prisoners end up joining her gang. And right away, uh, she starts to have trouble with uh, some, some goons, some idiots that live on the streets. Uh, one of the characters walks around in a thong, and he's just a dirty kind of trash guy. Comically, comic got character for sure. He plays into the film a little bit more. But uh, it turns out that um, somebody is a traitor in her gang, and people in her gang start to end up dead. Um, and the rival gang is, is responsible for this, and they hire this blind woman who wants a revenge 
as, as well as the cat who wants the revenge. So it gets this weird supernatural aspect to it. And uh, people start getting killed in, gratu- in really gratuitous ways. There is a scene that feels like it's right out of Horse of Malformed Men where they visit this kind of circus down, or whatever, this like the, the market. And there's this weird performance act going on where that blind woman is part of. Like she has a weird hunchback character. A lot of hunchbacks from 1970, right? Hunchback character that works for He's like a contortionist. And they, they all are kind of working together. And although you think that the blind woman is possibly working completely for this gang, she obviously has what she wants uh, more above the gang. She's just using this to her, you know, her kind of advantage. So uh, people start to end up dead from her gang uh, and their backs are skin and they all have this elaborate, awesome tattoo of a dragon on there. So it's coming for the entire tattoo is what they say. Uh, yeah, there's some cool stuff in here. Some crazy fight scenes. The opening fight scene is magnificent and the ending is great too. I liked how it ended. Um, just cool stuff. Uh, really different, really weird. Um, more of a, uh, action, like a, uh, fight movie, Yakuza movie, kind of like, uh, I wouldn't say Yakuza because it's a different period piece. I'm not sure when it qualifies as Yakuza, but definitely gang film with lots of swordplay and revenge aspects, but it also has that weird, like, character supernatural characters in here as well anyways it's an enjoyable weird movie the ending's really cool and the bad guys are assholes i was so happy to see the bad guys getting killed there's one funny scene in here that made me laugh out loud one of the characters is fighting he's like when i fight really hard i i have to move my teeth like this he's like that was pretty fucking hilarious and uh the ending like you see a lot of the characters killed but you don't see everybody killed you don't really ever see how the main fight turns out to the to the very end and it kept me wondering i was like wonder what the hell happen there and i like that I, I used to always have to have closure as a kid i was like i need to have closure i was the type of kid that would watch class in newcomb high i'm like what happened to all the cretins i didn't see that cretin die where's that cretin and it's just like who cares just relax life life and movies and everything not every little character you know the outcome to not every you know it's just whatever you're gonna be okay you don't need it. It doesn't take away from the movie unless it's a very important aspect to it. And you really don't need to know what happened to that Cretan that was in the background for three and a half seconds, okay? The scene was probably cut. You're going to be all right. And I'm like, okay. Who am I talking? I'm talking to myself here. I'm just went on a tangent about class in Newcomb High. But it's just, you don't need closure for every little detail, okay? Anyways, I did like the ending. And I like the character. I like the fight scenes. It's just a cool flick. Especially for 1970, different from the other Ishii movies I saw. I, I know I'm pronouncing his last name wrong. Ichi or Ichi. I'm always terrible at Japanese. I'm terrible with all names, let's be honest. But um, I prefer it over Horse of Malformed Men. I don't know if I prefer it over the Joys of Torture series or those, because I've seen a handful of those, and I think those are all pretty good too. It's around the same as that. All these are like seven, seven and a half movies for me. I would watch again, and obviously he was ahead of his time, and he was uh, a director that would do some crazy shit that a lot of other people wouldn't want to touch. So yeah, good flick for sure. And I think there are some features on here as well. And I started checking out some of them. Okay. We have audio commentary by Japanese cinema expert, Jason uh, Jasper Sharp does a lot of these and then trailers for four films, uh, in the Miko Kaji starring stray cat rock series, which is actually released by arrow. And at the same, made at the same studio of blind woman's curse. I will mention, um, which I thought was really cool. The uh, commentary uh, by Jasper Sharp mentions that all the big six studios in Japan at one point, he was like, um, they, this company, uh, Toho and Toei and uh, Nakatsu, they, he started naming how many movies they released in 1970 or one of the years of the 60, 1960 something. And he goes through and he's like, that is over 600 movies right there alone. So if anybody ever tells you they saw every movie, there's no way you saw anything. You haven't. There's no fucking way because how many, whatever year he named, how many Japanese films 
films have you seen from that year? Probably one, maybe two, maybe not any. There's like 600 movies right there you haven't seen, and it's just insane. Like, half of them will never get released. Half of them are probably lost. So there's so many things out there that none of us have seen and none of us will see. But, uh, yeah, just there's never-ending uh, amount of films out there, okay? So if you think you've seen everything, you haven't. There'll always be something to check out. So Blind Woman's Curse, good stuff for sure. What? What is this? Zombie Bloodbath 2, Rage of the Undead. Oh. What? You ain't seen Zombie Bloodbath 2, Rage of the Undead? Nah, I guess I must have missed that one. You ain't seen nothing. You ain't seen nothing. I seen way more than you. Mm -hmm. You haven't seen Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, Casino, Cannibal Holocaust, The Beginning, The Great Escape, Kelly's Heroes. Once about a time in the fucking West! You haven't seen War and Peace, Pink Flamingo, Casablanca, Gone with the Wind, Citizen Game, The Oven and the Chipmunks Christmas Special. You haven't seen... Hmm, what else haven't you seen? The Magnificent Seven? The Magnificent Seven Ride Again? The Magnificent Seven are back? Is that a movie? And last of all, you ain't seen Zombie Bloodbath 2, Rage of the Undead. And you haven't seen War and Peace. I ain't watching War and Peace. The hell you are. Fuck War and Peace. All right, we're here for You Ain't Seen. And this was my pick for you. Mm -hmm. And some people were saying, well, the last time, you was your pick too. But Jeremy decided to take his pick for Blind Spot. So uh, going through the 1970 movies, I decided to pick Mark of the Devil for Jeremy. I always liked this movie, and I figured he might get some enjoyment out of it. It's directed by Michael Armstrong, who's a British director, and uh, Adrian Hoven, who actually did what was the movie, uh, Castle of Creeping Flesh. Um, not to be confused with the Creeping Flesh was a movie. Regardless, it's a movie with Howard Vernon. Severin put it out. It's kind of a 60s, cheapy German horror film. So it's like a co-production for sure. Um, this one, it's uh, Video Nasty, and it's one of the earliest films to make the Video Nasty list. I'm trying to think, um, maybe the most earliest Ghastly Ones by um, Andy Milligan. Regardless, um, yeah, so this stars Udai Kier, early appearance from him, Herbert Lom, and uh, Reggie Nader, who also appears in um, Bird with the Crystal Plumage this very same year. So, okay. The movie opens up with, uh, I think, like a, a bunch of uh, monsters kind of like raping nuns, these guys. Not actual monsters, like, right. these, yeah, like uh, torturing, attacking these like nuns and everything. And the music is this beautiful score. I uh, think, you know, in the line with something where you play the most like wonderful music, like Cannibal Holocaust, and you show really gratuitous, awful things. I'm a sucker for that. It's just like the number one thing to get me to like something. So essentially this takes place during the Witchfinder times in kind of the same vein as Witchfinder General or, you know, Cry of the Banshee. Basically we have these kind of Witchfinders going around and, and condemning people to witchcraft and torturing them to get a confession. You know, Spanish conquistadores, time the Inquisition, all that kind of stuff. Um, and in 1970, I think this was actually filmed in the late 60s and released in 1970 in America, but that's a very kind of, you know, big kind of deal in 1970. There's a lot of movies like this, uh, the folk horror. It's also folk horror for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a huge fan of the movie, and for the time, it was very gratuitous, you know, tongues being ripped out. It's also very aggravating and very downbeat just watching it. 
Um, this is the third 1970 movie with Herbert Lom that I can think of, all which are horror-oriented, including the Dorian Gray and the Jess Franco's Count Dracula. He is MVP of this movie. He's absolutely fantastic. Yes. Um, his demeanor is great, and he is very upset about being impotent, it would appear. Reggie Nolder is one of the ugliest people ever committed to celluloid, and I mean, he literally is the live-action Skeletor. Uh, I just don't, I don't want to be too rude, but he's obviously has a scarred face and, and kind of like you mentioned, he's reminds you of Richard Lynch with the burns. Yeah. Like, but, I don't know if he was burned or but Richard Lynch, particularly to me, doesn't look that bad. It's more on his neck and he's just, it fits his person. I don't, Reggie Nolder fits the characters he probably played were just so repulsive. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, this is very, um, condemning of the church and uh, bureaucracy for sure all the bullshit that sign away y'all um y'all your inheritance and we'll let you go you'll you confess and it's such a truth too mm-hmm. you've seen it and stuff like the crucible which was something that really happened um, i'm sure this is based on true incidences but they open up with the title card that's absolutely hilarious where they say we're showing you the truth how this is and it's just such an exploitation movie and they're just basically like trying to get away with their gratuitous nudity and violence by portraying this as a real important piece of history and cinema but kind of like those nudie cuties or like the nude beach documentaries where it's just like this is a part of real life they'll show this naked people on the beach and in reality it's just to play at a drive-in so somebody can rub one off and this is just like a sadist is a wet dream in a lot of ways but uh huge fan of the film <laughs> after saying all that stuff i think the score is perfect i think that the scenery is perfect i like the cinematography i like the downbeat ending unfortunately Uday care is dubbed poorly but Herbert Lobman appears to be his real voice, as far as I can tell. I would say it is, seeing a lot of his films. But um, I've said enough about it. I'm a big fan of the movie. What did you think? Oh, I thought it was really good. Um, it's, it does follow, I think, maybe three or four different like stories, different yeah. arcs of different characters. I will say that the main female character I wasn't too fond of. I, I just thought that she was just kind of there. Um and there was a, another female that they followed where she was like raped by a bishop. And I thought her story was far more compelling. It, it, just, it was kind of a shame they didn't focus on it as well, much she's as... Ended a, a good she has ended a bit. Um, you know, they, they kind of like kind of like intersperse each story together to make one complete narrative. Um, uh, but, but yeah, but the, the girl that's involved with the bishop, like, I was just more drawn to that, that she story, would not I confess guess. so it, yeah, it she got you on her side yeah you know i just it's like and you know you know the situation so it's like okay yeah she probably was raped by the bishop oh no doubt no doubt like the way these people act and the way right. herbert lomax after he has like an inciting incident he completely goes off the rails and he oh, just yeah. like there's this great like montage scene where he's just like he's just like sensing a bunch of people not caring mm-hmm. or even thinking about it it's just like the music cues are perfect he's like torture torture to death death torture right it's just a great scene the executioner is really good too this dude's in a great. shitload of movies if you ever recognize him he's in a bunch of stuff i hate the little weasley fuck and like it's it's mm. like real life is the weasley person like that always ends up on top even yeah. though there's a horrible scene that happens to him, it's all psychedelic with his eyeball, which is great. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, there's also this really uh, sad scene with this puppet puppeteer and his yeah. family, which is really bothersome. And his his actual torture scene is just uh, what do they call that? I, I think this term's probably outdated and racist now. But as a kid, they always called it to me Chinese water torture. And I'm not sure if that's I think where they drip the yeah, water. inappropriate now or not. I just have no idea. Um, 
so a- anyways, I love the movie. If you have anything else that you want to say about it. I thought it was fantastic. The music is great. The music's um, really good. Herbert Lom is fantastic in it. Um, He's one of my favorite actors, oh, actually. Yeah. He, he, he is. I, I've always enjoyed seeing him. Um, he, like... I think the person I ever saw him was might have been the Phantom. Yeah, he's great um, in the Phantom. He's um, also great in the Dead Zone. He's great in, um, of course, Count Dracula, um, Dorian who, Gray. Who and was in um, the set with the that was Herbert Lom. That's Herbert Lom yes, too. Yeah. Yeah. he's also great in that. I might have seen him in that one before I had seen the Hammer Phantom. Yeah. It, it, it's hard. I mean, that that whole time frame is. Just, it, he's like I said, like there's so many of these actors that aren't like Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing or Vincent Price and John Carradine that are actually like whore guys, mostly considered whore guys. But mm-hmm. then you have guys like Donald Pleasance and Herbert Lom, where it's like literally half their career is horror movies or, right. or horror or cult films. Whereas like they're in a lot of other stuff that's very mainstream or popular or not horror or cult films, but most of their films are cult films, whether it's due to their appearance or just due to the subject matter. And I think like. Like, most of these guys just worked in a lot of horror films mm-hmm. in general because the work was steady and they were past, I don't want to say their prime, it's just that they were always in demand for any something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, did you want to read the books? Yeah, we'll go for it. So, John Stanley's Creature Features. I think that this was made at a time where it was despised because the violence and everybody had to be like, this is just exploitation. And people were afraid to admit that they enjoyed violence or you weren't a real critic. And I guess I'm not a real critic because whatever. But still, I'm just a film enthusiast, like I said. Mark of the Devil, 1970, one out of five. Sickening German-British gore bore about the 17th century witch, finder, uh, witch hunter Herbert Lahm and his ghastly torture methods. Features the jolly sight of a woman's tongue being cut out of her head and the other nubile desirables with their blouses ripped open undergoing heinous forms of sadism this revolting material went over with the public for a sequel which also embraced by, which was also embraced by viewers directed by michael armstrong a real name sergio kastner uday kier reginald they call him reginald in here instead of reggie nader uh aka austria 1700 satan and burn and um Satan, and then Anne Burn, Witch Burn, which is also another title of another movie, I think, called A.K. Night of the Eagles, which we should watch as well, which is about witch burning, I think, Burn, Witch Burn, or it might be modern, I don't know. But regardless, that's a movie we should check out. I've wanted to see it for years. Okay. I have the um, Terror on, on tape. tape by James O'Malley. It's O'Neill. James um, O'Neill. And it's out of four stars. I'm just going to make things up anymore. All right, Mark of the Devil, out of four stars, he gives two, 1970. Best known for its advertising, rated V for violence, and stomach distress bag, give away this gory German ripoff of the Conqueror Worm, originally known as Hecken bis auf Blutgeckel, which is tortured till they bleed. <laughs> Has Lom as an impotent nobleman who takes out his sexual frustration on young women wrongly accused, tortured, and executed for witchcraft. Although not quite as gruesome as it seemed at the time, this is still so tasteless overall, with rape, torture, and witch burnings aplenty, that it's still pretty hard to endure, lacking the humorous touches that make Herschel Gordon Lewis's gore flick so weirdly watchable, aka witches and burn witch burn. We are totally not on the same page here. Um, <laughs> you're gonna show, it's so funny that they're like, this violence is, is disgusting and repulsive. It's like, what, do you want to jerk off to it? I know that they considered that people... The sadism mm-hmm. is some sort of sexual um, thing, and they're probably like people are probably. Doing, but at the same time, it, 
the violence is mean-spirited. It's a mean-spirited movie, and I, I don't know its exploitation, but sometimes exploitation movies can be thought-provoking, and it does point out accuracies about how terrible and hypocritical the church and government and all that shit was, and The Devils does it the best. Let's be honest. The movie The Devils by Ken Russell is the best, the best that this genre has to offer, I would say, although every single one of them is worth watching for me. I've mm -hmm. never seen a bad one, including the 1991 Pit and the Pendulum I love. Um, they're all really something that's fascinated me. I've always enjoyed them. I, I think a lot of the witch movies are, like, specifically, like, the witch Inquisition, whether, whether it be the Inquisition or, or like, the, um, what, what do we have here? Just witch Fighters, witch Generals, yeah. Yeah, like the Salem nonsense. Or, or um, even when you get into, like, the superstitious general, even if there's monsters involved or vampires, like Jonathan is also another one that I think is worth looking at from 1970. I, that one. I, I don't know if you watched it. Oh no, I was just talking about the movies in general. Yeah. Like like to specifically when they handle like with either anytime that it's a movie about the church persecuting somebody on superstitious beliefs, it just becomes a really compelling especially when they're kind of based off real events, it becomes a really compelling watch because you know this is bullshit. And, and yeah. that's why non is also a great yeah, subgenre. If you exactly. look at Slava and the Heretic or Alicarda. Mm -hmm. And uh, those ones are really fun because at the end of the movie, not Flava, Flava is more of an exploitation <laughs> drama, but Alicarda, you're like, well, they were possessed. So, like they said, the church is shitty, but at the same time, they're possessed. So, like, I, I really like these kind of movies that are really condemning of the church usually older or European films in general because, like I said, America is really um, dumb about it. They'll be like, yeah, and then the priest raped a kid, and that's the movie. Yeah. And I'm a serial killer because of it. Yeah. And it's just, it just feels like it's coming from an outsider while a lot of the Italian and Spanish and European films in general, although exploited of it, maybe sometimes they were coming from an outsider. They just seem they're just so much better at it than us. Uh, anyways, uh, I probably gonna give this a four out of five or an eight and a half out of ten. Big fan. Yeah, I'd probably give it a four out of five. Yeah. Um, you know, I haven't seen the Vincent Price one in years. Because are, are they the same character? Well, Matthew or? Hopkins. Um, well, well, I'm gonna talk a little bit of spoiler about Witchfinder General and Mark of the Devil. In real life, the character Matthew Hopkins um, in Witchfinder General was a real character and he lived he escaped mm -hmm. and in this film herbert lom's character escapes which reminds me of the uh, matthew hopkins character escaping in real life so this one is kind of like no you don't really get satisfaction which i think drove people mad it's an ugly mean-spirited movie and sometimes that works and I, it works for me it doesn't always work for me but and it won't work for everybody and i think no. people are just mad like what the hell was the point of that the main bad guy doesn't die the freaking weasley guy doesn't die everybody else is killed the love story doesn't end on a good note it's just a very 70s uh, nihilistic kind of deal uh, I, I think it's great. I think it, it fits right into that 1970s sweet spot of that that kind of horrible stuff. Like if you see, like I said, Whirlpool ends on such a downbeat too. Well, there is such like a weird bait and switch with this one because you're given um, the original is that, is that uh, Reggie Nolder, the Witchfinder. Yeah. yeah so, so you're getting him first, you know, and he's just a piece of shit. And then like you then you get the Herbert Lom character who comes in and like apparently he has an even worse reputation but at first he seems alright right he has a worse reputation than the town's current like witch finder but then like you get to see the characters like oh he's like 
like fair, logical. He's a true believer, you think. And as right. it goes on, you're like, oh no. Oh no, he's he's, he's, he's just he's lost a worse piece of shit. Mm -hmm. But he hides it. He tries to hide it. Hide it behind the religion. And I don't know if that's because of Udai Kier's character, like looking up to him and like... I think that his facade completely <coughs> fell away when he actually committed the murder. So right. it was just like, this kind of like just embraced it. Although he was full of shit anyways with the, uh, with the, um, freaking, uh, Baron. Yeah. So, and the poor Baron, man. <laughs> that's a pretty gratuitous, uh, violent scene. Oh, I shipped them, by the way. The Baron and Udai Care? Oh, absolutely. You're ridiculous. Nope. Uh, anyways, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, like I said, it's your pick. If you want to do a blind spot or you ain't seen or whatever you want to do. Um, so I'm torn between two possibilities. Oh, but I was going to say, I, so um, before I pick my one next week, I just wanted to say, I, I, it's been so long since I've seen the Vincent Price one, The Conqueror Worm, that I don't know which one I like better. The Vincent Price one or this one. Most people prefer the Vincent Price film. I just prefer Vincent Price, period. I also have like a long running Dungeons and Dragons character based off of Vincent Price yeah. in that movie. Matthew Hopkins. Yeah, neither here nor there. Um, no, specifically just Vincent Price. Not Matthew Hopkins. He's Matthew Hopkins in the movie. Vincent Price. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, so for next week, I'm torn between two, and I don't know if you have either of them. Okay. Um, do you want to do... I'll give you a choice. Okay? Um, either Pink Flamingos or Plan 9 from Outer Space. Pink Flamingos. Pink Flamingos? Never seen it. And okay. you, you ain't seen the John Waters movie. Have Let's you ever that. seen Plan 9? No. It's an Ed Wood movie. I have both. Yeah. So we'll do Pink Flamingos okay. then and we'll save Plan 9 for later. Um, I saw Pink Flamingos at the appropriate age of like six or seven. Exactly. Perfect time. Um, yeah. Like, so all you people with children, just put it in for them. It, it kind of like watches the children for you. <laughs> <laughs> watches their brain melt, apparently. So I'm good. You? I'm done. Okay, guys, I'm using my little uh, Kindle or whatever the hell this thing is to do the questions and everything. So Chris Rivers. Um, so I do have a question aside from anthologies. What film would you rather see as a streaming series? And I'm going to have to give it Nightbreed. Let's do Nightbreed. Um, and I want Clyde Barker to direct it because I know people are like, well, we got the director's cut. It's just not the same. I like him to start from scratch and have complete for, uh, um, complete uh, control, freedom uh, to do what he wants to do that story. And I think that one, especially if you looked at any of the comics, could literally be elaborated on and have a lot of deep, rich mythology. Uh, Southport Rocker. So basically, this is an answer to the old question, recast one of your favorite movies. The mustache look is definitely the picture to go for on the pervert card. This week's question is a real hard one. Casting for Class of 1984. Love this movie. Me too. He cast Michael Gross as Andrew Norris. Need a likable person in that role. I agree. That's a great idea. Margaret Kidder as Diane Norris. Great choice. Donald Pleasance as Terry Corrigan. He'd do the nervous uh, breakdown part very well. I'd also, Peter Cushing could do that too, I think. Sean Penn as Peter Stagman. Bad Boys at Close Range Era. Perfect. Keanu Reeves as Fallen. River's Edge Era. Perfect. Winona Ryder as Patsy. Perfect. Crispin Glover as Drugstore. River's Edge at Close Range Era. Perfect. Ethan Sluppy as Barnyard. Perfect. Elijah Wood as Arthur. That is a great cast. That movie sounds fucking awesome. Would love to see it. Um, uh, Ethan Sluppy as Barnyard. No rest, dude. Class 19-4 is one of my all-time favorite movies, too. Love it. Love Big fan of gang movies, especially when they're all set up really well. Um, love it. Love it. And then N-Rank loves Defoe Loco. <laughs> and I'm, okay, so he says... 
I love the montage intro for 85. I hope you're able to make one for each year, then review your top movies from that year eventually. Thank you for all the content over the years. I've been subbed for you for a long, long time. I'm glad to see you still reviewing and uploading after all these years. Thank you very, very much. And he also says, and I'm with you on the movies being a part of history, even if they weren't really all that great viewing them from a modern perspective or even seeing them at all at the time. I feel like there's lost lots of creative endeavors, be them songs, movies, video games, etc., where they might not be well executed, but the concepts they delve into bring about a whole new genre, inspire some really great artistic creations later down the line. No doubt. Bad Brains Whore. Hey, Dave. Awesome video. 1970 is so great. Writing down so many movies to watch. Answer. I Basically, I asked for last week, what is the most thought-provoking uh, sub-genre uh, in film? Cosmic horror and would agree science fiction. Thought-provoking because they show insane other worlds and possibilities. Great stuff. Isimicio? Man, when Arrow dropped Irizumi and posted about it on Facebook, I was like, what is this lovely thing? I have to see it soon, and I'm bumping this one way up on the list. The spider tattoo is riveting, and the story draws me in. The Big Lebowski is great. Um, PSH was one of my... Oh, Philip Seymour Hoffman was one of my favorite actors, technically still is, and he is glorious in it. Yeah, he's... Um, darkness washed over that dude, over the dude. Thought-provoking films lead to a very thought-provoking question. There's so many. For me, films that are not spoon-fed to you fit in that category. Keeps the audience on edge and guessing. Films that take real-life events and spin them in a light where you reevaluate what you assume to be normal-slash-justified. New Order. Combat Shock. Oh, Combat Shock is really messed up. Films that take taboo subjects and throw it back in your face without fearing repercussions. Mobius. Hidden in the Woods. Both great films. And films that are primarily fictional, but pulls you from your seat and makes you go, what the fuck did I just watch? Not sure, but I kind of dug it. Horsehead, Night of Death. Both two movies I need to watch. Uh, Claire Bear, I received The Witch in my Easter Basket and haven't watched it yet. Watched yet. You, my friend, have motivated me to want to watch it. I love the little monster's music touch you put on my pick. I'm Eau Claire, by the way. I watch here on YouTube a lot because Patreon is annoying to log into sometimes. I gotcha. Like, it's so hard keeping up with all these different platforms like Instagram, and I barely keep up on Twitter because, like, I don't, I feel like you just have to be on Twitter 24 7 to get any interaction. The Maniac. Only reason the witch is not a horror film. Basically, what I went off and did the stupid rant that I was like, witch, people that think witch isn't a horror film, and I'm like bringing up like scars and reopening scars from like 2015 because I'm old. I'm like, remember when people said witch wasn't a horror film? That's over. Let me bring it up like an idiot. Basically, I should have just stopped. The fight's over. I think that people know that The Witch is a horror film. But there was a short time where people like, it's not a horror film. Witch is simply a historical drama that has horror aspects. It's like, go oh, fuck yourself. We know it's a horror film, all right? So basically, I'm bringing up old wounds here. And then we have The Maniac. The only reason The Witch is not a horror movie is because it got critical praise. I've seen it many times. As soon as critics and film snobs like a horror movie, that's when it's no longer a horror film. The new It movies are coming-of-age movies, not horror. Jaws is an action movie, not horror. The Exorcist is a thriller, not horror. I know this because I was the only horror exploitation film fan in history of film class. I had many discussions with some of my more snobby classmates who insisted that great horror films weren't really horror films. Keep preaching for horror, sir. I... I want Joe Bob to go to your school, Joe Bob Briggs, and just like scream at all the kids. And be like, that's definitely a horror film. I love that. I would love it. Uh, Caps Lock, glad to see you're uploading still. Really strange to think about, uh, but I subscribed to your channel when I was only in the fourth grade. Watching YouTube before school, getting in the movies, and here I am watching you after work, the night shift construction on the highway. Time flies. Glad you're still passionate about films. 
Uh, thanks for watching. Really mean that. And uh, I'm glad I'm still passionate about films too. Or otherwise I'd be really boring and probably just like, I'm going to work today. Not going to do much after that. I'm um, sorry that I used that voice to be a dumb guy. But hey, um, if it makes you feel better, it's the same voice I used for Joe Bob. And he's a smart guy, right? Um, yeah, I also worked concrete for years. So I know construction. It's a nasty business. And I just mean hard, hard, hard labor. Um, Barnaby Collins, you guys have to watch The Last Planet of the Apes and let us know your thoughts. It's my favorite next to the first one. Rodney uh, does a great job acting in it. So good and leaves a lot to think about when it's all over. Please follow up and watch it too. If you like three, then you will like four. We're going to watch all of them. We just going to savor it. Savor the apes. Uh, also wanted to tell you, I love you guys giving me my homework, telling me what movies you guys are going to be watching and reviewing the next week. I go pull it from the shelves, and if I haven't seen it, I make sure I do before next Wednesday so I can see how we all viewed it. Love it. Love it. Wish they still had video replies so people could make video replies to to it and be like, Dave, Jeremy, you're wrong. I hate you. Or I agree. Or why didn't you bring up this or something like that? That'd be a lot of fun. Zach G, the review slash opinions on Little Monsters are dead on exactly how I feel. That movie gave me more nostalgia than any other movie. That score was the soundtrack to my childhood. Great review. Thank you. Ilk Vomit, Dick Jones said he put directive four on RoboCop, but Dick Jones had no involvement with the development of RoboCop. He was not a member of Bob's team. How do you think derivative four was implanted in the RoboCop? Um, I'm pretty sure Dick Jones, being the vice president, probably had somebody in on Bob's team that was reporting directly to Dick. He probably had that guy put the Derivative 4 into RoboCop, or it might be a software that everything that OCP has goes into that. But regardless, there is probably a rat on Bob's team. Has to be. because And it would have to be somebody that could hide it, because people would be like, what the fuck is Derivative 4 when they're going over the programming? Not 100% sure. I wouldn't say a plot hole. I would say a, a question that wasn't dwelled into for obvious reasons because they wanted that reveal. Um, so, okay. And then Mandy Cage, dope shirt. Thank you. DM1. I like to think that Gregory Scott Cummings' character in Hack-A-Lantern is actually Luther. And that movie was the reason he's in jail on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Love it. Um, that's canon now. We're just going to make it canon. I'll get, I'll get my people on the phone. Stefan Midander, also thanks for the witch rant. For me, it's the best horror film this side of 2000. Love everything about it. Uh, Travis Lithgum, I wanted to say this as well. Hell yes on the witch rant. I love it. And of course, it's horror people. Colin Morris, hey Dave, I was born in 86 and I also grew up loving Little Monsters. The only thing that threw me on the Vestron release was the soundtrack and a scene of ADR. Evidently, the Vestron release is a theatrical cut of the film, which I never saw before since I owned the VHS release growing up. Just wish uh, Vestron would have put the home video cut on the disc as well, or at least as the extras. Oh well, at least it's on blue now. Great video as always. Thank you. P.S. The soundtrack and score are also awesome. With Wish Magic of the Night was released, but the songs written by Billy Hughes weren't full songs and were recorded for the scenes in the movie, which is why they're not really available that's good information to know um the song where there i asked basically what song was changed because i didn't notice a change in the song i did notice the adr line which was rather stupid and he mentions the song where they all scaring the baby in the crib is different i also heard the uk version of the film they changed the talking head song with queen's fat bottom girls which is crazy to me road that nowhere just fits but then again that's how i am accustomed to seeing it yeah Fat Bottom Girls on Little Monsters? Why? Road to Nowhere is perfect. We're on the road to nowhere. Come on inside. I love I love that song. Um, Nick Mua. Another uh, another amazing show, sir. I truly enjoying your deep dive into the 70s. When our parents were young and possibly stupid. Highly doubtful, though. Perhaps for future shows, you can change your style according to the decade you're covering. Who wants to see Mr. Parker in bell-bottom pants? Not me. 
Uh, the genre that has given me the most food for thought, yet disturbed me at the same time, is the biopic. When done right, it can provoke us, disgust us, make us happy or sad. We realize that our ancestors weren't all that different from us. At the same time, it's painful to have it acknowledge that humanity has involved all that much. When I remember seeing films like Monster, Dahmer, Schindler's List, or Ten Rillington Place for the first time, all these feelings, those feelings, good and bad, came rushing back. I can only hope these peak in our collective past will stop us from repeating it, though I may be hoping in vain. Probably. That line there, those feelings, good and bad. Here come those feet. I got that weird song stuck in my head. Questions. When you and Jeremy can't decide which film to cover for Blindspot or you ain't seen, how do you resolve uh, said impasse? Tic-tac-toe, a game, nice chess, thumb wrestling, katana fight on the lawn? Um, now we're just going back and forth. So basically the other person says what it is and the other person's like, fuck you. I, I guess I have to do it. Um, unless it's... Uh, War and Peace? I ain't watching War and Peace. Uh, which director would you give an A for effort, but a B or C for execution? That's really hard. Um, I would say that Wes Craven had the best concepts ever, but his execution was more like a B. Like, But his ideas were so A-list that like a lot of his movies for me turned out A's anyways. It's like, that's that's the thing. is No movie's perfect. Nobody's great at everything. So when somebody's so good at one thing, you're just like, well, it's got to be an A because there's nobody that's unmatched in that department. So, you know, um, geez. Who's a, a director that always tries really well? Um, you know, I think people that are like, nice try, but no cigar. I think that's more annoying than somebody being like, I didn't like your movie. So I don't know. I don't want to say anybody, for example, but I would say that Wes Craven's ideas are a, always a ideas and his execution is maybe sometimes a B or maybe even a C, but that's everybody. But Craven's ideas, I always said best idea guy. His concepts are so good. Nightmare on Elm Street is one of the best concepts ever. Like, even if I don't love every little detail about the movie, as a whole, the movie's perfect because of the concept, if that makes any sense. Um, here we go. P.S. I missed the stash magnum. Ain't got nothing on you. Uh, Stephen Meander, that 1970 song must be Black Sabbath with Black Sabbath, right? Probably the best horror theme song ever. It is a Black Sabbath song, as you know now. Uh, Glenn Plain, uh, people actually say that witch isn't horror. Do you think that horror movies are only haunting movies and slasher creature films where a bunch of pretty people get offed? The Witch is hands down the finest gothic horror film of the 21st century so far, and in my opinion, the third best horror film of the 2010 decades that I have seen. It's one of the best, for sure. Uh, Ken Coakley, as much as I love horror exploitation and sci-fi, I would have to say that the documentaries are the most thought-provoking. About 15 years ago, I watched a movie called Capturing the Freemans about a prominent family from Long Island, New York. The father, was a, who was a teacher, and one of the sons were accused of abusing students. The film was very balanced, and the DVD showed people at screening of the film having heated debate. It will not only have you thinking, but it will also have you talking. Uh, fictional films that are considered to be thought-provoking can be preachy, and I don't like that because I want to be entertained. Um, I do not mind a preachy movie or a movie with a message. So many movies do have messages, especially from the past that are just considered classics now. I do think a lot of people will hate on a new movie that has a message. But what I will say is movies that's messages are too ham-fisted and it's only made strictly for that one message without any other artistic merit or value or entertainment or anything like that. If they're just like... Look at this ham-fisted bullshit. It, it does get a little annoying. Um, sometimes people can hit you over the head with the message and it still comes across not ham-fisted to you and well done. Um, so it's a, it's a fine line to walk. Um, when people can... Like, um, this is going to sound really weird, but um, 
I heard somebody like basically in the redo of Candyman. I don't want to spoil anything, but people were complaining about basically how Candyman is created. I think and that, and I, I don't know all the details about it from, but from my gathering, my understanding is you know they're like, well, they have to put politics in Candyman. It's like, well, Candyman was killed in the original for loving a white woman. Like it was a political movie. We're not talking about Friday Thirteenth remake here. We're talking about Candyman. It's okay. I mean, like, you don't have to watch it, but if we're talking about a movie that never had that stuff and they're adding an element that doesn't belong there, that's fine. I mean, like, it could be aggravating to certain people, but when you look at a movie that had this kind of stuff and they're putting it in there and there's an updated message and people are upset about it, it's like, I think that you guys are a little off base here. So, um, Western Ram. I hate when people say movies aren't whore because they talk too much or there's no jump scares. That's the generic teenagers with zero attention span talking. They need to be jump scared every five minutes to be considered a whore film. Most of the greatest horror films have one or zero jump scares. Love the witch, by the way. Barry, a.k.a. BTK. Dude, where's the mustache? You look good with the mustache. Another viewer asked for dystopian movie recommendations. I love Terry Gilliam's Brazil. 100% perfect. I agree. Also THX. When I was talking about dystopian last week, I was feeling like more. I, I somehow fell into the vein of more post-apocalyptic and not dystopian. And I apologize. Escape from Planet of the Apes looks good, and I've been meaning to see all the 70s, 8 movies. I prefer crazy, incoherent plots from yesteryear over the overly slick CGI movies of today. Me too. I love E.T. too. Just because it's a massive hit doesn't mean it deserves a backlash. I despise... Ooh, I'm losing my spot. I despise when people disregard movies simply because it's a pop culture sensation. Most thought-provoking genre has to be science fiction and the question of existence of life on other planets. I saw Close Encounters of the Third Kind in a theater on New Year's Eve 1977 at the age of 11, and it was overwhelming, profound for its subject matter, and for contributing to my love of cinema. I do try to answer your questions, but sometimes I'm watching your episodes in parts, and most of the time I find when I get to your questions updated, it's too late to answer. Life gets busy and week goes by so quickly, but I'll try to contribute more last week's question stumped me though because i couldn't recast any of my favorite movies um i understand like i i'm really terrible about it too i'll watch a friend's video or or listen to his podcast and i don't give feedback that's a thing like i feel like they don't need to hear feedback they know they're good or they they like man they did they made a mistake there maybe i should mention it and i just don't want to bother people or it's too late or it's just like do they really give a shit i don't know so i understand completely like are David uh, Draven Rogers art house or psychological thrillers at the top of my head Jason Hammond I want to say horror because it makes us look at the place in society at times rather uncomfortable Dustin Mills documentaries as an example basically any of them Skip Barber I agree with Dustin but I am sure you meant fictional narratives so I would say detective stories since there is always some human flaw that sets the action in motion my examples would be Double Indemnity which is both film noir and detective story Lost and Greed are what drive the characters Rakesh Brown Mondo those shocking doco series paved the way for modern extreme film and video mixtapes peter england of suburb satire welcome to the dollhouse happiness election american beauty the ice storm the squid and the whale to name a few matthew hudson documentary my three favorites are the thin blue line crumb and titty cut follies those three all have characters that at the same time you revile and yet pity or even respect because real life is more complex than story good people can do shitty things shitty people can do good things nothing shows those qualities of humanity better than a documentary steve friedel psychological thrillers it questions both the mind and the dark side of the human nature Example, Session 9, The Machinist, Proxy, Hide and Seek, The Stanford Prison, Experiment, etc. Susie Ayala, Film Noir, whatever the fuck genre Lynch is. <laughs> I don't know what his genre is. Um, Jonathan Wilhelm, Murder Mysteries, Whodunits, Jason Higgins, Horror Slash Home Invasions. 
funny games. Funny games, very thought-provoking. Gorilla Waring, uh, documentaries, and uh, Africa Adios is what she puts. Mike Mitchell, horror thrillers. It's the only fictional genre that can look at so many different social issues, akin to um, hit you over the head with the message like Dawn of the Dead and its blind consumerism, or hide it in plain sight like Baba Hotep, and how we as people tend to shuffle our elderly out of sight and out of mind until the day comes to lay them to rest. It also has the ability to hide itself as highbrow film, lure in major and unexpected talents, and still tell a profound message like one-hour photo and discuss what it is like to be lonely, unseen, and jealous of people who have what you lack in life. It's truly the most versatile of all the genres, with sci-fi a close second. You know, that's a very good answer, and I, I completely agree with a lot of that. Um, and uh, it's so weird when you watch a movie or you watch something that is in media, and you see it, and you're like, I completely agree with that message. Like, Bubba Hotep, we all do, but we all are guilty of it, right? Just because we got, you got to go to work, you got to do other things, just can't, don't have the time, don't have the time, and then before you know it, you're like, oh, I should have done that, I should have done this, I shouldn't have done that, and I'm an asshole. <laughs> it happens, and it's just a messed up thing about society. Hopefully, eventually, we can change as a whole. Um, and then question of the week. So I want to know what, how you determine what you watch. Like, do you strictly stick with streaming services? Do you listen to podcasts? Do you only let, do you watch Joe Bob? Does Joe Bob tell you what to watch? Do you listen to podcasts? Do you watch streaming services? Do you pick a year? Do you look at a director, an actor, follow down their line? Um, I know a lot of people uh, get stuff to review. So how do you determine what to watch? Uh, I'm curious about this because I basically ma- mentioned that there's so many people out there that I know, and, and I'm not trying to be a dick or anything that just watch what comes to them because you know it's easier that way they don't want to do the hunting or dig deep or anything like that maybe they're they don't know how so sorry so how do you determine what you watch as well so let's get that answer and i guess we're gonna hop into the update okay let's get into this update uh first up from the kino sale love when kino does these sales they're so reasonably priced you can get I don't know, 10 dozen movies for like 125 bucks. I got 12 movies for like 122 You can't beat that. So first up, we have The Hot Spot, which is the Dennis Hopper-directed movie, film noir like you've never seen. Uh, yeah, interested. Um, it's got a good cast, and I like film noir, especially modern ones. I just haven't seen as many as I should. So Dennis Hopper is a madman. Jennifer Connelly, who doesn't love her. Then we have the American Blu-ray release of Runaway Train. Um... Twilight Time had one that was out, and I also had the Arrow edition, but this is a great film. Eric Roberts, John Voight, jeez, uh, this is a really cool film. John P. Ryan, MVP of the movie for me. There is something magical about him in a helicopter strapping up to kind of like getting ready to go on the train that just was one of my favorite scenes ever. So then we have Curse of the Faceless Man, um, kind of appears to be an older horror film not watch this one um but i like old horror films i just like a lot of times for a price i'm like well i don't have that one i'm gonna grab it i'm gonna get you sucker the meaning to buy this one forever this movie's a, a black uh exploitation parody and i seen it a long time ago um it's got the waynes brothers in there it looks like bernie casey jim brown's in there isaac hayes it's got a good cast man and uh the main baddie is hilarious i love the reveal 
Um, lots of people have done these movies. It just really cracks me up. So anyways, this is a fun movie. It's been a long time since I've watched it. Really good gag with a stuntman that's made me laugh out loud. So let's look at the cast a little bit closer here. Um, see who's in here. Uh, Keenan Ivory Waynes, Bernie Casey, Antonio Fargus, Isaac Hayes, Jim Brown, Janet Dubois. Um, and there's more people too. I know there is like small little cameos and everything like that. Then we have The Lodge, Lodger, which I think is a classic horror film. I've never seen it. Um, a lot of people have talked about it. And yeah, definitely going to check this one out when I get a chance. And then it's weird. Uh, the Jericho Mile. I had my eye on this one for a very long time, directed by Michael Mann. And it's really crazy because I uh, this weekend did some yard work. Uh, I know people are like, what are you doing yard work? I had to. Um, so I... Uh, was listening to it and I just this one came in the mail and then uh all of a sudden boom who brings up this movie on Pure Cinema Podcast is Quentin Tarantino just says he just watched Jericho Miles like that's crazy I just got that in the mail um if you guys don't listen to Pure Cinema Podcast do yourself a favor um it is Brian Sauer and Elric Kane uh great show Quentin Tarantino's been guesting on there here and there and um I know a lot of people are like I don't like to I love Tarantino and I love his opinions of films he is very passionate and um I, I love hearing him and I usually, um, most of the time he recommends something, I don't dislike it. So the cast in this is great. Peter Strauss, Richard Lawson, but I see Brian Dennehy on there, Billy uh, Green Bush, Ed Lauder, Jeffrey Lewis. And that's crazy. Uh, Billy Green Bush and uh, Jeffrey Lewis were in uh, the Cold Pepper Cattle Company together. So it's, I wonder if, uh, yeah, that's cool. And Ed Lauder is great. He's in a million movies. I didn't, I didn't even know who was in that, just looking at the cast as top notch. Uh, then we have Wild Geese 2, Scott Glenn, uh, you know, Never seen this one. Also starring Laurence Olivier. Okay. That's <laughs> never seen this one. Uh, I haven't had a chance to watch Wild Geese 1, so maybe I'll do a double feature. Uh, remember that cover, though? Stiletto. Uh, yeah. Alex Cord. Brick Eklund. Uh, Patrick O'Neill. It's like a crime film, from my understanding. Never seen it. Uh, the 4D Man, which is actually on the Universal Watch List. I know it's more of a sci-fi film, but we're going to check it out for sure. Um, yeah. Looks cool. Looks like guys walking through walls. What's that character from X-Men? Shadowcat, right? Kitty Pride. And then we have Teen Witch, which I've never seen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is that, um, uh, Caroline? I can't remember her freaking name off the top of my head. Uh, Zelda Rubenstein. Is she in this? Uh, is she in it? I gotta check now. It is Zelda Rubenstein. Maybe I'll watch it just for her. I've been wanting to see this a long time. I know it's got a cult following. I've never seen it. So, Teen Witch. Then we got Shadowplay with uh, D. Wallace Stone and Cloris Leachman. Never seen this one. If you would have just showed me that cover art and said, who is that? I would have told you Sharon Stone right off the top of my head. I really thought it was her, just because she's in so many of these, like, thrillers. This one's older, 86, so I thought it was, like, a 90s thriller. So, there we go. And uh, then we got the Time Travelers. Step through the time portal beyond crack. The crack in space and time where the fantastic world of the future will freeze your blood with its weird horrors. That is a mouthful, huh? Uh, what is this? This, like, mummy with a, with a giant with a... What the hell is that thing? Like, that creature literally... <laughs> that back cracks me up. Thump. Just hitting that robot in the head. That thing literally looks like um, uh, a muscle man figurine or something that they would just make a toy. And you're like, what is this? Like, it was an easy design. Screw off. Um, this movie looks bonkers. Looks literally bonkers. American International Picture, of course. Uh, then we have Treasure of the Ninja. Then the films of William Lee. 
Agfa, of course. Um, that person looks so unenthused to be on the box there. Um, I have no idea what this is. Um, I am a yearly member to Vinegar Syndrome, so like they do the 50% off, and I'm just like, a lot of times I can't buy it all on the uh, the the brother-sister labels, but this one uh, looks ridiculous enough to grab it. So uh, then I got a couple Criterions from the sale. Uh, Nightmare Alley. Heard lots of good things about Nightmare Alley. Um, of course, uh, film noir. And I've always wanted to see it, but I just finally picked it up. Glad to have it in the collection on Blu-ray. And I upgraded a DVD I had, Island of Lost Souls, Charles Lawton, Bela Lugosi. The first um, on-screen adaptation of The Island of Dr. Moreau, which I, I enjoy the story, and I do enjoy the 70s version with, uh, who, who's in that? Burt Lancaster is in that, and Michael York, I think. Been a while since I watched that one. And the 90s one, of course, is not particularly great, but there's some cool special effects in there. So I imagine that this one is probably the best uh, adaptation. I'm not 100% sure. But this one, I think it was a Paramount that was eventually picked up by Universal in 58. So I think that we are going to cover this for the Universal one. So I'm going to do the Paramount pictures, or at least some of them. Anyways, we're going to hop back to the video. All right, guys, thank you very much for watching. And as always, have a good one. Hey.